0: An episode with a lot of sisters, sisterly episode. The three sisters, to start, meaning the islands north of the Vale and south of White Harbor, and the two sisters, meaning Aegon's queens, Rhaenys, and Visenya. Mighty though they are in war, and we'll see some more of that along with their brother, but today it's time to, t- to see how they are as rulers, at least at the start of the, con- of the post-conquest era. That's another way to look at this one three sisters and three heads of the dragon before the first dornish war began there was three-ish years in which the only conflicts were small and isolated i.e most of westeros was at peace and adjusting to this brave new world of of, a world ruled by targaryens aegon and his sisters the dragon's interim we're calling it simply because everything in fire and blood in this section is called the dragon's something or other the dragon's reign The dragon's peace the dragon's wars so why not the dragon's interim the conquest was almost easy as you probably recall at least in terms of the battles and in many ways those who had not fought back would be the hardest to deal with even though many if not most of those opposed to the iron throne had been turned to ash literally in many cases the difficulties of ruling a realm that has never been ruled as one or nearly one we should say this is all untrodden ground it's it never been done before it's not a simple matter of just killing all your enemies although Aegon had proven pretty expert at that it's not exactly a way to rule a realm it's a good way to you know, get in charge but you have to manage what comes after that many of the greatest real world conquerors were not particularly skilled at the post-conquest stuff So this is the brief time where Aegon, Visenya, and Rhaenys began to prove that they were more than just dragon riders, while making sure to continue to remind people that they were dragon riders. (laughs) All that and more on this episode of History of Westeros podcast. Hello and welcome everybody. We're back with another episode. This is the first recorded episode of 2024. It's not the first episode that we drop in 2024, but the first one that's live recording during this new year so we're excited to start another year of excellent fun delving deep into westeros essos and all of george r R. martin's creations when we do live streams on sunday they're at 3 eastern that's when most of our live streams occur afterwards every video is on youtube and spotify and every episode is an audio only form available anywhere you find podcasts and it's ad free if you listen on patreon Or if you subscribe through Spotify, a lot of the episodes can be found with ad-free versions as well. Now, our topics moot is coming. Speaking of Patreon, it's going to run through the end of January, the 28th it starts, and through the 23rd of February. We'll be choosing 12 topics that will get made this year, and we expect this to be a yearly thing. So if you're hearing this in the future, sometime beyond 2024, well... Be on the lookout for this current year's topic, Smoot, whatever year you're hearing this. We expect it to be a fun, recurring thing. Sean, how you doing today? Uh, welcome to 2024. We didn't have you in our last episode, so it's been a little while.
1: And uh, how's it going? I feel like we're already in the future. 2024? I mean, that's something that <laughs> we would make up as a, a future date to, <laughs> to <laughs> off. 2010 (laughs) (laughs) yeah 2024
0: (laughs) i think this was the year that something big happened in one of the movies 20 i know like last year it was like or the year before it was like the year that back to the future 2 like came true or whatever (laughs) i forget what movie it was this year there's a big one that's like 2024 something happened like maybe one of the star trek oh i think it was star trek 2 or Star Trek Three, one of those, Three, yeah, yeah, with the whales, yeah. I think that I think mm. they referred to twenty twenty four in that one. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's one way to feel older is to achieve the year in a movie that they thought was like so <laughs> far flung, like oh, that's so far in the future, people will know, people won't even be be aware of this movie
1: by then. Well, they were wrong about that. <laughs> <laughs> what are you drinking today? I've got a a mix that's be, starting to become standard now. I've got the Green Naked Drink, the Bolt House uh protein drink the pineapple coconut sparkling ice and magic mind wow all (laughs) stirred together it's kind of creamy it looks like it has
0: layers there's like three or four distinct (laughs) shades of green in that beverage (laughs) shades of green cool band name yeah (laughs) that's right it's not easy being shades of green Hmm. So shout out to our good friend Nina, goodqueenally.tumblr.com. Her notes are in this episode, as you might suspect, because they're in almost every episode. Her latest blog post, which pre-slash post-conquest events and in-series events would be popular plays slash operas in either the Seven Kingdoms or Essos. It's not a a thing that's wildly or deeply delved into in the books, though it certainly comes up, especially in Bravos. What kind of plays and you know stage productions happen? Obviously, there's the puppet show in the Hedge Night, so that's something. But there's prou- there's room to imagine a lot more, like which historical events would be done and how they'd be performed. So it's a fun little rabbit hole of of imagining and topics. And Nina writes a good several paragraphs on, on on some stuff here that i find very insightful and some good choices so check that out if you are so inclined
1: i really like that thought i never thought about it before but just like you know nobles european nobles would have artists you know caravaggio whoever they want to see paintings of scenes from the bible you can imagine you know some king would have wanted to see scenes from the The conquest or whatever. Yeah,
0: yeah, right. Or or some ancient stuff. I mean, and Westeros has such a long history in Essos too. Like that's something that's like weird to compare to the real world. Like there's they almost have more material in some ways. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So questions if you have them, certainly you can send them live if you're here during the live stream. And you can always send them to Westeros History at gmail.com or interact with us on one of the many social media platforms. We're pretty much everywhere these days. If you're on a social media platform, search for Westeros history and you'll probably find us. And at the end of this episode, I'll mention some other topics that exist as episodes that we've made in the past that relate to things that we discuss in this one, as well as the answer to this trivia question. Whose idea was it to form the office of Grand Maester? Bonus, if you can name the year it was created. The answers to both halves of that question are in this episode, if you didn't know it already. But if you don't, I'll tell you at the end. So this is the beginning of the post-conquest era with such topics as what I described for this one in the beginning. Plus marriages, questions of succession, ruling policies, other changes to the realm. Then the First Ornish War, which is arguably a lot more interesting than the conquest itself because it was actually a challenge. And the mysterious ending to it that uh, via letter that upset and confused both Aegon and the fandom, uh, which we're we're really interested in that. We don't have, uh, of course, the answer to that mystery, but we have some great guesses and we'd love to delve into that. So that's coming fairly soon. And, of course, the rest of the Conqueror's reign. Longer looks at Visenya and Rhaenys, the Red Keep, the birth of Aenys and Maegor. We got a lot of fun stuff for this portion of Val Arboretus. And then we'll get back to some of our other topics where we've decided to delve into Valoritus in chunks some of you asked for us to keep it all at once but we've realized that it's better to jump around
1: we might be doing it for three years if we try to do it. All <laughs>
0: <once>. <laughs> it's it's also fun because just the way this fandom is presented, like the material that we're given by George and by the TV shows, that's how they all work. They all jump around. Like, you you never stay with one character for very long. So I think it makes sense for us to do a similar thing. Although we'll stay in one place longer than the books and shows do. Uh, we'll jump around a little more often than we did in prior Valar. Rere read, I wouldn't see what I did there. Reread, I yeah. So we'll start with the Three Sisters. This actually is a little bit forward in the timeline, but only a little bit. Uh, but it happens during this interim period of the year one through four, but it's more like the year end of the year one or beginning of the year two, but some of these things aren't specifically dated. So anyway, let's start with the Three Sisters, quote.
2: In the bite, the Lords of the Three Sisters had taken advantage of the chaos of Aegon's conquest to declare themselves a free nation and crown Lady Marla of House Sunderland their queen as the aeren fleet had largely been destroyed during the conquest the king commanded his warden of the north Toran Stark of Winterfell to end the sister men's rebellion and a northern army departed from White Harbor on a fleet of hired bravosi galleys under the command of Sir Warwick Manderley
0: the hired Bravosi galleys are a bit of a clue here as to maybe why the sisters thought they could pull this off. Although, to be honest, it's a little crazy. And it, it's explain. it's it sort of, you get the idea that this was unusual because of how few other places did anything like this. They knew better than to try to think they could defeat the dragons, even with or without a navy to threaten them. And the reason they may have thought a navy wasn't around to threaten them was because, The Gulltown Navy smashed the Valarian fleet and then was in turn incinerated by Visenya. So there wasn't a lot of available navies on the East Coast. There was no royal fleet at this point. It was effectively the Valarian fleet was the royal fleet. And that, like I said, had just been torched and, and surely wasn't rebuilt to any degree that it would eventually become, say, during the Dance of the Dragons when it was at its peak. So this was gotten started once the conquest was beginning, once the veil was focused on itself, as in, we're worried about what the dragons are gonna come do to us. We're worried about Aegon and his sisters. So that's when the, the sisters are like, oh, well, our liege lord is distracted. Uh, the realm is at war, let's make our move. So Torin had to march home after kneeling, uh, in f- from kneeling to Aegon at Hall, and then he received this order, presumably his first order from the king that was of any significance and this wouldn't have been quick right he had to call up a fresh army presumably all that, that army had gone home the one he marched southwest so a lot of them would just have to turn back around and be like hey we were just in the field six months ago or three months ago now it's time to go back again and that is difficult and of course the hiring of a fleet couldn't have happened overnight they have to go to bravos and negotiate and Get the ships outfitted. None of this is quick, basically, and it's not necessarily something that shows approval by the Bravosi government because this is Bravos. So they're supposed to be against dragons and Valyrians and stuff. So the fact that they worked with Aegon shouldn't be taken too deeply because these are sell sales. They're not idealists. These aren't Bravosi government ships, right? So yeah. <laughs> And I think Sean, you had another take on this too, as well. Like, there's just the basics of, you know, peace is good for everyone, right?
1: Yeah, these uh, ships might have wanted there to be peace as much as anyone. Uh, I, you know, I, I depending on what the nature of them were. You know, I guess if they are all just hired hands, maybe they're just looking for any kind of battle. But I can imagine that they might prefer for things to be settled in Westeros, even if it just means that normal shipping lanes go back to where they were so they can attack them like pirates. You know, like yeah. they just said they'd rather stability, they'd rather the status quo. But it does show, I think Nina pointed out, that it shows that Aegon had enough wherewithal to contact and pay these ships. Like there's, he was getting an amount of stability already yeah
0: you know i think technically the manderleys hired the sell sales but regardless it's still they did it under aegon's orders, so it's still a similar thing it's still he's still the guy in charge and we can't take this too far bravos of course has problems with dragons and that's a big deal with maybe what's happening in a song of ice and fire but this isn't valyria it's not like aegon was threatening to start a new valyria there's no slavery which was the main issue for bravos and well you know so it's hard to say that they would of course always be against anything the dragons are doing and there'll be plenty of times when they work together in the future so it's not quite that simple as they're always opposed
1: i had uh, one other quick thought that the the sisters might not necessarily have thought they could beat the dragons we've talked about this before even if the dragons can come to their island and burn everything up okay but you still need to have some human bodies to occupy the land right and the navy just got destroyed right And also, Aegon doesn't seem like he wants to kill everyone. He wants to be ruling them. It might have been a a few factors made them think they might get away with this. Like maybe they're not big enough to matter to Aegon. I I don't think they really thought they could beat the dragons. I think they thought they might get away with it because they're not a threat, because Aegon doesn't want to just kill them all. He wants to rule them, and there's no ships to come take over. I I don't think it's completely crazy what they were doing here. Yeah, and and there
0: seems to be some sort of game and i say game in the term of game of thrones because there's some very odd decisions made here some some unusual things that happen basically why is the sister marla sunderland why is she the queen when it turns out she has a brother and you know normally in westeros the the men come first so something's odd about that not that it's a bad thing but it it, it's kind of like "Mm, was did they install her as a puppet ruler did they make her like a front to take the fall because that is kind of what happened she does kind of end up taking the fall now that's one scenario another scenario is that she's very ambitious and she takes a position that her brother wouldn't have taken because he thinks it's insane to try this <laughs> 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 that's another possibility, like a cersei sort of move. maybe yeah. not maybe not as like cruel and paranoid as a cersei but ambitious and and aiming to climb the ladder in any way possible and maybe not great at forethought <laughs> that
1: kind of yeah that and, kind of attitude Yeah, maybe she was a great leader maybe she had proved herself maybe her brother was a crappy leader and had already been put to the side it, it, you know we don't get a lot of details from this and it does seem on a surface like the easy answer maybe is she was just a puppet like just an excuse for the other leaders to test and see if this works and if not she can be the scapegoat later on yeah but maybe she had more agency than that. Maybe, maybe there is, I can imagine, I can imagine a, a two-season series about this whole event, you know? <laughs> yeah, it would be pretty neat. <laughs> there, there's a lot of great parallels. A lot of intrigue and character development could come from it. You know? So there's
0: another interesting thing to consider here is the time of, of year, or the season, rather. Time of year doesn't mean the same thing in Westeros, as far as <laughs> the seasons go. I mean that it, it was autumn around this time, and autumn is a bad time, right? Autumn is stormy season. So. Even if they thought that ships could be procured f- from by their enemies, they might get lucky, and the storms might drive them back or make it difficult for them to invade. And of course, they revere storms in the Sisters. That's it's kind of the opposite of the Ironborn. <laughs> the Ironborn think the the Storm God is the the Satan, basically their equivalent. Whereas the, on the Sisters, it's like. The storms bring them stuff because they're wreckers and they they plunder shipwrecks and it's, it's a boon to them. So it used to be a place of piracy and wrecking. Now it's more a place of smuggling and fishing. The piracy is it's difficult to be pirates in an area where there's lots of, you know, up and up sailing and, and militaries. Unlike on the and dragons. yeah on the, yeah <laughs> not to mention dragons now on the west coast it's a little more easy there's there's fewer navies and ironborn are stronger their culture is more about warriors uh, than about these other forms of crimes that <laughs> the sister men are known for perpetrating and you can see the value immediately uh, t- of house manderly and white harbor to the north i mean this wasn't part of the north even you know six hundred to thousand years earlier so if we imagine some odd scenario where the Targaryens or someone had conquered Westeros much earlier and the sisters had a rebellion. It wouldn't have been ordering the Northmen to do something about it because they wouldn't have been equipped to do it at all. Like, well, how are we going to get there? (laughs) You know, what are we, we don't have ships. What do you mean? We're the North. We haven't had ships since Brandon, the burner or Brandon, uh, Brandon, the Shipwright Or what have you. And that was who knows how long ago. So it's interesting to see also the way the authority trickles down here. The Aegon commands Torin to get this done. Torin then commands White Harbor to do it. <laughs> it's like, all right, Aegon passed down the command, but I'm, I'm f- passing that off to you. I don't think Torin did anything personally other than pass this command on. So that uh, goes to show a few things in terms of how these things work when the, the warden system is activated, which I guess that was the first time the warden system was activated and uh, it worked pretty well. And, uh, that's makes a lot of sense to this, to this day, the sisters operates mostly independently. So that's maybe part of why they were of that mind that they could pull this off. What if the Manderleys already had a Navy, you know, would they have done anything differently? Would they have not hired Bravosi or I don't know? I mean, ships are very vulnerable to dragons. So. It might not have made that much difference in terms of how the war actually went. In fact, it wasn't really a war. I mean, they once they saw, <laughs> they gave up pretty quickly once they saw that their delaying tactics or the storms or all that didn't work. Secondly, a much farther back what if, the Manderleys constantly remind themselves of their own past, and their past was in the Reach. So the Manderleys would have otherwise been on the field of fire <laughs> during the conquest. They're like, whew, that's where we would have been. We would have been baked like everybody else. Remember the the order of the green hand was entirely wiped out except for amongst them they are now the only ones left and they still to this day consider themselves members of the order of the green hand so their rough equivalent in power was house peak you know it was the Tyrells. i mean not the tyrells but the gardeners at the top and then kind of a few other houses like peak and oakheart and these guys the the manderleys were about as high as it was so they would have probably been near the front since the house peak suffered nearly as badly as the Gardeners, then the Manderlys probably would have gotten cooked just as badly. So this would have been maybe a time when they gave thanks <laughs> for their change of locale, and yet more thanks to the Starks, who they revere for allowing them to join their kingdom. To this day, of course, we saw Wyman Manderly preach it to Davos and to Robert Glover about how much they regard the Starks and how important it is to them, to their history, and to the fact that they even exist to this day. If they're memorializing that now, then they probably memorialized it 300 years ago when it was when it really mattered. When things that would have shown them, you know, <laughs> would have changed their outlook dramatically. So good job there. Now, I wonder how eager or not eager the Order of the Green Hand was to show itself. like, Were they like, I don't know if we want to be seen or maybe we're like, we're the proud few left. I mean, it could go either way right sean like that's that's a tough one to to guess at huh
1: i could see a scenario where they might be looked at as cowardly for not having been there with the rest Mm. but uh i don't know i'd rather be a coward and be alive and (laughs) and, (laughs) and they have the chance to go prove their bravery right now they've got a chance to go into this next battle you know so uh I, I don't show me the person who's not a coward when a dragon is breathing fire at them, right <laughs> yeah like,
0: <laughs> often those are dead people that you show are shown there yeah
1: <laughs> but I guess maybe they there could be the uh a fear that you know that they fought against the Targaryens and so maybe they're scared the Targaryens want revenge or something I said don't, I don't think that's the case so because it's not like the Targaryens were set out to get the order the green hand right. they're trying to win this battle that the order happened to be at and so yeah I think I would be on the proud to still be part of it side and and the targs might be happy for that too there's one more faction they can say lay claim to as an ally that's true and it's not
0: like there was some bitter long-term struggle between the order of the green hand and the targaryens they just took the battlefield that one time got wiped out and then bent the knee well the the other guys bent the knee since they weren't around anymore (laughs) so yeah it's unlikely that the that the targaryens were offended by this but they might still have wanted to play it safe and that matters here because we see another example of a dragon rider escort slash chaperone accompanying a regional army just like Rainis accompanying oris baratheon where she's not being told to do by him but also vice versa so they're kind of like co-leaders like no one tells the queen what to do but also oris was in charge of the army not her so it's a similar situation here no fighting was required just the invasion force existing and getting close Here's the quote to bring it to a close.
2: The sight of his sails and the sudden appearance of Queen Visenya and Vagar in the skies above Sisterton took the heart out of the sister men. They promptly deposed Queen Marla in favor of her younger brother. Stephen Sunderland renewed his fealty to the Erie, bent the knee to Queen Visenya and gave his sons over as hostages for his good behavior one to be fostered with the Manderleys, the other with the Arons. His sister, the deposed queen, was exiled and imprisoned. After five years her tongue was removed, and she spent the remainder of her life with the silent sisters, tending to the noble dead. Weird, right?
0: That is weird. I think this argues that she was the ambitious one rather than a a, a, a patsy a scapegoat because why would they need to do this five years later if she, if this, what is the scapegoat acting up? You know, like what well, it sounds <laughs> like she was still making moves or doing stuff or uh, something uh, that they had to five years later. Yeah, like d- that kind of argues that she was...
2: Her a tongue mover was shaker
0: rather than a puppet hmm? yeah,
2: that her tongue was wagging yeah her tongue
0: was exactly yeah <laughs> so the kind of thing she was saying they were worried would get them all killed or start trouble or we don't want the dragons coming back here let sh- stop it lady <laughs> so yeah that makes some sense there's so that's kind of where i lean in terms of the theory here but you know we don't know for sure and what happens if isenya is like flying over the, the the islands there and she sees that order the green hand standard and is like didn't we wipe
1: all of them out? What are
0: they doing here? You know, <laughs> again, she's probably not upset, but she might be like, well, that's weird.
1: <laughs> Didn't we win them to our side? Yeah. <laughs> oh, there they are on our side. Yeah. yeah, right on. Yeah, she's like, well, they're definitely on our team now. So it's all good. I want to say real quick. That's the most successful use of a military. This was the most successful battle (laughs) of the whole conquest, right? Yeah. No one died. One person had their tongue removed five years later. And that's that's like it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) There may have been some people that died that we didn't see, but it was pretty mild, apparently, as far as wars go. Yeah. Uh, Although I guess you wouldn't even call it a war. A conflict, an incursion, an uprising. I don't know some of the sister men would still have tales of the rape of the three sisters aka the worthless war fought by the Vale in the north for possession of these isles we've talked about that before and it's just uh a bad thing like it was horrible horrifying and, and terrifying what they did to the three sisters there was all sorts of atrocities so th- not the kind of thing that's easily forgotten and this is a good time to kind of consider, well, who was in this Stark army? Who came over with the Manderlees on those galleys? Was it some of the same people? Obviously, Visenya was there, but were, the, were there actual Starks along with the Manderlees? Or did he just have the Manderlees handle themselves? Were there Boltons there? I mean, if Boltons came, that would scare the Sister Men, too, because it was... Recall, there was some Belthazar Bolton who made a pavilion from flayed Sister Men. Maybe that's just a story, but uh, maybe there's a grain of truth to it, like... It wasn't a whole pavilion. It was just a smaller tent of skin.
1: (laughs) Or maybe it was a whole pavilion and only a portion of it was made out of skin and not the whole thing. But even if you try to downplay this story, it's still pretty uh, gruesome, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
0: Nina suggests another possibility that maybe Stefan, the younger brother, was a half-brother, which might have been why Marla had priority in in order because she was the older one. So, yeah, that's a possibility. Uh, she's also a little perplexed, maybe not perplexed, but confused in a similar way to we are in that it's hard to pin down what was going on here, uh, because there's a a little bit of, there's a, a couple more details that would tell us a lot, like one or two more details would mean a lot. I also think George was thinking about the anarchy as in the anarchy in England, Marla and Stefan are very similar names to Matilda slash Maude and Stephen, who, who were the two main claimants, and they were related in a similar way. So uh, one of the arguments against Matilda's claim, by the way, was that her mother had been a nun, which is similar to how Marla was cast aside except afterwards instead of before we also refer to the anarchy multiple times in our scripted coverage of the dance of the dragons with radio westeros because it's the main parallel to that entire war but it's clearly george has used it as a blueprint here and there elsewhere because well it's a it's a fantastic real world story you know taking away all the suffering and
1: horror that (laughs) happened during it you know 1200 years ago or whenever it was exiled and in prison is a little unusual too yeah what's right? that it's <laughs> it's almost seems like it should be the other way imprisoned like they capture her and put her in jail and then decide okay send her off to essos that would be imprisoned in exile but exiled in prison so you send her off to essos and then put her in jail and it couldn't have even been essos because she's with the silent sisters yeah it's
0: just it's weird she
1: exiled from the sisters maybe but then I think that's yeah, if we a,
0: piece it together, the, the 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 best way I can make sense of it is, yes, yeah, she was imprisoned for a little while and then exiled. And then because she kept talking or trying to stir up trouble, they brought her back, cut her tongue out and made her join the Silent Sisters. That's kind of my figure, like exile, even exile wasn't enough to stop her from causing trouble. Because, again, like if she was just a puppet, they sent her overseas. Like, how could they wh- how could she ever be a problem again? You know, like she was never she was only ever a, a problem in the first place because they made her one
1: <laughs> it's possible I, I I think there is a scenario where maybe she was just a scapegoat but she knew that they did have these plans mm. that they're being dishonest that they weren't loyal to the Targaryens and then once they made her a scapegoat she's not going to let them get away with it so she kept mm. telling the truth which all right okay, cut her tongue yeah. off before the Targaryens catch wind of our real plan
0: mm-hmm. okay. okay yeah so Again, the timeline isn't super precise here, but we're pretty sure this happened before Aegon resolved the Iron Islands. But either way, the two events somewhat overlap somewhat, and that would explain why Aegon perhaps didn't come himself. Or it was because Visenya started it, so let her finish it. Something like that, because it's technically part of the Vale, which was her portion of the conquest. (laughs) So either way, they were the last two regions to be settled before the attempts on Dorne began, and technically Dorne would never be settled during Aegon's time, so they were the last two regions to be settled during Aegon's reign, and war with Dorne wouldn't start till the fourth year after the conquest, so AC4. So this is basically the size of the realm for about, like 190 years, so a little less than that. So the, the realm is fixed uh, despite the attempts to add Dorne or maybe the temporary additions of Dorne. This is basically what it's going to look like in terms of the borders for until Doran joins via marriage. And remember, there had already been a threat and a rejection, right? Rhaenys had already gone there and flown around to several castles and no one showed up and they kept leaving. And then she finally got face to face with uh, Miria and the aka the Yellow Toad. And she's like, you know, get out of here, unbowed, unbent, unbroken. And Rainey said, we'll be back with Fire and Blood, which she will, but that time won't come for a few years yet. So technically, there's been no fighting between Dorne and the new Iron Throne yet, which is partly why they're able to space this time out. As we'll see, there's actually going to be some more negotiations. They're going to be another try at a peaceful resolution. We'll talk about that a little later in the episode. Okay, let's get into the interim properly here. The, the narrative in Fire and Blood focuses its attention on how the realm was ruled after the end of the Dornish Wars. But clearly this all happened in concert. In other words, the, the, the descriptions of what happens after the Dornish War must have started before it because the Dornish War started. It took nine years and it didn't start till the fourth year. So stuff was happening before that in terms of setting up the new regime and, and making some of these policies. But it's described as happening after that. I just think that's how the book is laid out, you know, because he, he doesn't want to discuss the royal progresses and then discuss them again, discuss all these marriages between and then discuss them again. It would be sort of repetitive. So I think there's the, But that's still that's a lot of time, right? Four years, roughly, or maybe three and a half between Aegon's coronation and the beginning of the next serious war. That's a substantial amount of time, and it's at a time, a very crucial time, when the kingdom is new and a lot of stuff needs doing. And if we consider the Ironborn and Three Sisters needing dragon rider attention, so there were wars going on, but those were largely confined. Like, they didn't spill out into other areas. And in fact, the Sisters, as we just described, wasn't really a war at all, unless there was some, there might have been an uptick in in shipwrecking and and maybe some piracy. But other than that, it it still didn't rise to level of war, like I said. And neither were relatively protracted either. They ended pretty quickly. So it was fairly peaceful after the field of fire and the burning of Harrenhal. And in part, that's why it was fairly peaceful, because people didn't want to see a repeat of those things. They knew what they were up against. So you could say maybe it was an uneasy peace or maybe more accurately, it was a period of adjustment. What would you say, Sean? How would you would you frame it that way? Or what do you think here?
1: Period of adjustment, for sure. Uh, I, 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 I Through a lot of this i was thinking about the idea that when america declared independence it was in the midst of the war that we were writing the articles of confederation and it took a couple years to do that and then eventually that was also replaced by the constitution and that also took some time you know so you know they didn't quite have the same sort of written documentation of the form of government they were going to have but it still would take some policy decisions and people being put in place and all and kind of like you were saying like if you're like teaching this, if you're, you know, writing this out or whatever, you don't go back and forth between some battle in South Carolina and some meeting in Pennsylvania about the Articles of Confederation back to some battle master. You just talk about all the battles and you talk about all the Articles of Confederation as separate topics, you know, so. Yeah. I, and I think that's probably what was happening even through the course of the war with Dorn. They're probably still establishing certain positions and certain, you know, dipping out land, setting up marriages, all these, governmental type things are happening concurrently with the war type things.
0: Right on. Yeah, I, I, that's tends to be the way I lean as well. So I think it looks like we agree on that now. Yeah, because it can't be understated what a giant change this was for Westeros. Yes, in a way you could see it coming from a historical perspective. The kingdoms, they had gone from thousands or, or hundreds of kingdoms down to seven or eight or whatever you want to call it, however you de- define kingdom. It's not terribly important to get that number precise. The point is the same. There was a sh- shrinkage in the number of kingdoms, more unity, more. Th- so this was kind of a, a natural step forward. It was just a matter of someone needing to do it, someone having the ability to pull it all together. It probably would have happened eventually, even without dragons, though, it would have probably taken longer, uh, maybe a lot longer. So this is the kind of thing we covered in our Under the Dragons series, which is ha- we've we've done a couple episodes on that in different regions and how they were affected by the early reign of the dragons. And of course, we have one episode on before the dragons, which was the state of the realm just before the conquest began. So in terms of these new policies and this new way of ruling the realm, we we get to have an extra fun here because we can look at how they started and then later look at how they did or didn't work out in the long term, because we've got a lot of Targaryen history in front of us coming up over the however long it takes us to go through all this and at a very high level. Many of the great lords of Westeros would be preoccupied with getting their vassals to accept the new state of affairs, meaning there's changes. They're like, well, some things would be different with tax structure and and your obligations to your lords and certain titles would be redefined. Just a general restructuring. Have any of you who's ever worked at a big company that has an organizational restructure, even a small company having organizational restructure where people take different titles and people move around? Sometimes it's a really good thing. It's very needed. Sometimes it's not, but <laughs> a lot of times it's very necessary. Like things are just kind of out of whack. It's a good reset, get things, things have fallen off, and, and rather than. Trying to pick them up one at a time, you do the difficult thing. It's like a full house cleaning. You know, you want to keep your house clean, but sometimes you need to get under the couches and clean the window sills and just get to areas that have really needed work and haven't gotten it. That's kind of what's happening here. Some of these structures have existed for so long that having a refresher or a reset is actually a very good thing.
1: And sometimes it takes a negative thing to pump that, yeah. right? Like mm-hmm. the basement floods. All right, well, the basement's about to get clean better than it ever has before, right? Yeah. It sucks that it flooded, but it's going to prompt this action that has been put off. So some of these changes probably should have happened in Westeros already, and it took a war to push it. So,
0: Yeah, and what's interesting is where a lot of that burden falls. Yes, a lot of these high lords will have to find ways to make their vassals happy with this new state of affairs while also finding ways to accept it themselves. But it's interesting that a lot of the burden of this change fell on their children and not their heirs so much as their younger children. And as it often does, as often these things do because they don't inherit things. So they're often left with being the hostage or the marriage, uh, the hand in marriage that has to be given to to create an alliance or something like that. So let's check out a quote here on in many days it, um, on this topic, how the High Lords face this. It's their child, rather, the children of the High Lords face this on a day-to-day basis. Quote:
2: The reconciliation of the Seven Kingdoms to Targaryen rule was the keystone of Aegon I's policies as king. To this end, he made great efforts to include men and even a few women from every part of the realm in his court and councils. His former foes were encouraged to send their children chiefly younger sons and daughters, as most great lords desired to keep their heirs close to home, to court, where the boys served as pages, cupbearers, and squires, the girls as handmaidens and companions to Aegon's queens. In King's Landing, They witnessed the king's justice at first hand and were urged to think of themselves as leal subjects of one great realm, not as Westermen or Stormlanders or Northmen.
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting way to think about it, right? That he is trying to create a new noble culture where they don't think of themselves as separate. It's probably easier for certain realms than others. It's probably harder to get the Northmen to think themselves as part of one realm Uh, or the ironborn but the westermen the stormlanders the riverlanders the reach their culture was already a lot similar so that might have been a a bit easier task there they already worship the same gods they already have you know care about things like knighthood and they have similar views on marriage and eat a lot of the same food so that was probably easier and that's in some cases than others but there's always individuals to to reckon with. some people are just stubborn, and some people are just very adaptive and Who knows where these individuals came from? There's nothing about northerners that's fundamentally less adaptive. I don't think you know from if they're if you get taught things at an early age you you still have that malleability to to change and see the world differently than than someone who's maybe. Been stuck in their ways for 50 years or something like that so this is pretty fascinating it's also a pattern that's existed for a long time i mean the idea of pages cupbearers squires handmaidens and companions we've seen this so much in a song of ice and fire it comes up very often here and there uh but court and council is a pretty broad term isn't it (laughs) like that's what is courts a little or council's a little simpler although at this era the small council wasn't fully defined so it's still kind of vague but court like Every court is different. Like who's allowed there, like the vibe, the culture, you know, how much they talk, whether they gossip, whether they don't, whether they're like to party or are very, you know, s- stern or it just the different vibes and if you go through different courts of different Targaryen kings or of non-Targaryen kings, you see that it's it can change quite a bit. Like consider Aegon the 4th versus Aegon the 5th. There's a huge difference just there uh between two Aegons. Or compare, say egg on the first to egg on the fourth. Massive difference there. You've got a guy who's pretty serious, pretty determined, hard worker versus a guy who is just a complete waste of, of space and is a horrible person.
1: Even counsel, especially at this point, could be very different because you think of counsel as like this close group of advisors, right? That's sort of what it basically would be. But it might have been a little different at this point because when he needed counsel on things far away he needed to know what's going on in the north and the west and iron islands and he was traveling there also right yeah so his council would have been more spread out that's uh, true geographically and probably a greater number of people spread out over a greater number of locations and uh, and I bet his court was larger than normal too. It, anyone's courts later on that were large were probably because of the precedent he was setting because he needed to include as many people as possible. Yeah, it was right? a policy, yeah, for sure. Like, I, I don't know if this is exactly the uh, the best way to look at it, but I bet his court was, there's all kinds of weird exceptions. So I, I realize this is complicated to say, but what I want to say is it. I bet his court was more than seven times bigger than any one of the other seven realms courts i could see that sense? yeah i could totally uh, see that yeah it's hard to say seven because drawing was not a part of it you see what i'm saying it yeah. was relatively bigger proportionately bigger than any other court.
0: he was intentionally trying to bring as many young nobles there as possible in order to impart this new attitude this new level of culture and just to show them to remind them who's boss picture yourself as one of these people let's let's imagine this twice once as someone who's a bit like sansa someone who's heard about court who's Excited about the possibility, thinks it's an amazing place to be, wants to be a part of it, uh, maybe sees opportunity for advancement, maybe just is excited about it for a number of different reasons or someone like
1: opportunity for handsome boys.
0: Sure. <laughs> or if you're, if you're pretending <laughs> or girls, if you're if this is a male Sansa, a Sanso <laughs> <laughs> or someone like Ned. Where who is like does not want to go to court? <laughs> it's like I'd rather stay home. I like it here much better. You know, they can do their thing. I'll I'd rather do that. But that is forced to go. Someone who has to go that doesn't want to. Picture it from both of their angles. So someone this isn't like now. I don't mean like a Sansa who's eventually going to be disillusioned of their someone who's naive because this is not someone who's there's no Joffrey in this scenario. These these they're not getting forced to marry some awful prince. Now there are probably some examples of arranged marriages for some of these people that didn't work out. And there might be a few Joffreys in there, but it's certainly not like an odd, like don't take the Sansa scenario <laughs> too strictly you're, you're
1: here. You're it as the Sansa uh, mentality going into it. Yes, that's what you're looking not at. The,
0: not the actual way it plays out. Yeah. So versus the Ned mentality, it's not going to play out with him dying, having his head chopped off either. Like that's not necessarily <laughs> how it's going to go, but just that attitude and then showing up at court for the first time. Okay, so let's let's envision it as the Sansa. The Sansa shows up and she's like, Okay, this isn't quite what I thought because... I came from Winterfell or Highgarden or something like that, and this is just a wooden keep. <laughs> at this point, it's the <laughs> Aegon for it. It's just logs and dirt, and it's like, okay, this isn't really what I pictured for the king who just conquered the entire continent with his. But then they see like Balerion and you're like, oh, okay, well that I now I get it, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> not a lot, a lot of them would still not have seen Balerion or any of the dragons, despite how much they had been seen. There'd still be a lot of young nobles that would not have seen them especially a lot of the girls because they wouldn't have been anywhere near the battlefield and a lot of the young men too because some of them would have been near the battlefield but some of them would have been young enough to not go or some of them just their house never fought like uh, a lot of the houses in the Vale may still not have seen a dragon yet because Visenya went to outside Gulltown to burn the ships and then straight to the Eyrie (laughs) to accept the surrender so there wasn't a lot of in between so a lot of them may not have seen it so like House Royce that's a pretty major name May not have seen a dragon yet, you know, or especially not Balerion. They may have seen Vagar, So they're all taking one at a time. They're all arriving or in groups and and being simultaneously like, what's up with this log thing? But also overwhelmed by the dragons and perhaps Aegon and his sisters as well, because they're very uh, exceptional, both in visage and, you know, prior reputation. So that, that would be kind of an unusual like, well, wow, they've got this. They're amazing, but... They need a new castle, don't they? You know, and this, remember, this is the mindset of a noble <laughs> like you or me. Probably we wouldn't be like, this is dingy. You know, we would be like, I don't think I'd have thoughts like that, <laughs> but I wasn't born at extreme wealth. So
1: <laughs> there might be some uh, Ned included who might be more satisfied with it. There, yeah. there are people who are more appreciative of a Spartan lifestyle might be happy that they're not wasting a bunch of resources on gold statues, you know, Ned might be more okay with it. And some might come from similarly meager, uh, castles themselves, That's right? True. Like, I don't know, someone from Barrowtown or whatever, like most of them probably came from the more major houses. It would expect nicer quarters, but, yeah, but some of them also might've been impressed, especially the ones that may be more knowledgeable might be like, they might have the same mentality you're saying like this is kind of crappy compared to my home but some of them might be like wow this was built in how long yeah 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 it's already this big
0: like they're and they might some of them might be excited to see what it turns into they're like oh this is clearly just the start they're going to build more and you can already see when you arrive at King's Landing well there's like a building is going up there's probably multiple buildings under construction when they showed up and that state of affairs would continue for the rest of their lives king's landing is going to grow really rapidly the red keep isn't going to be finished till 45 ac there's just a lot going on king's landing is going to be an incredibly bustling place and it's not just the city it's also the cat the, the red keep well the egg fort and then the red keep
1: it was i thought i had a little earlier when we were talking about the idea of all these people coming here and how large the court would be that they've got to be prepared for this so there's got to be enough cooks and food and stables and everything else for all these people they've been brought to court and once you have that established well, you're not going to peel back, right? You're right. going to continue to take advantage of all the infrastructure that's built so the court will stay big and become a center of communication and trade and everything else. Absolutely.
0: Now, Nina brings up another great point here compare this scenario to Danny, which we're going to have several comparisons to Danny throughout this episode. As always, Danny is a great parallel to Aegon the Conqueror. But this is a part of the parallel that is not as explored as much like people focus on a lot of the basics like, OK, three dragons conquering esta- re- you know, establishing a dynasty versus reestablishing it. A lot of parallels there. Uh, black dragon specifically, you know, all these other things. But Danny in Marine had to learn how to rule after having a, an exceptional conquest over the area and kind of beating them fairly easily. Right. And she didn't even have as much dragon power and in fact, quite a lot less dragon power. And in fact, in fact, she had no dragon power during most of the conquering of Slaver's Bay, other than Drogon burning the face of one slaver, you know, during the the, the trick for the Unsullied. So mostly it was the Unsullied that did the damage there and, and her Dothraki and some other things. So but that aside, it's a similar scenario where she comes into a place, takes it over and has to make a lot of changes. has to make change to the culture and wants to rearrange how things are done and she's dealing with a stubborn nobility one that's not really pleased with her. Now to be fair, the Westerosi nobles were probably more accepting of Aegon than the Myronese are of Danny. There's some prior Uh, anger towards the Targaryens and Valyrians based on the history of the Giscari Empire and the Valyrian Empire, which does that kind of background doesn't exist with Westeros. That sort of, uh, you know, anti-dragon attitude wasn't there. And... They're more hostile as well because she's making bigger changes. Like, there's no ending of slavery that Aegon's trying to pull off. In fact, Aegon, very much so, is a policy of changing as little as possible in the short term. In the longer term, he changes more, but in those first few years, he's very cautious not to change too much because he doesn't want to get anyone too upset. He doesn't want to encourage rebellions. He He wants to keep everything safe and peaceful, which... You know, you you, you don't want to see certain you want certain laws needed to be changed. And maybe uh, there's definitely some things I would say you should have changed those sooner. But I uh, respect as a policy, not just forcing a bunch of changes all at once, given that's probably better for keeping the violence at a minimum that's the most important thing i think
1: and enabling more change down the line yes right yeah so if you change a whole bunch up front people to have a hard time accepting any of the changes but if you do one thing at a time by the time you get to the fifth one then they'll be more on board with you that's
0: true that's a good point
1: it's also uh, an extra challenge that danny has is that this is fundamental to their way of life mm-hmm. like the morality slavery, yeah. aside which you know not that we shouldn't address that too. But for example, if Aegon wanted the Iron Islands to stop sailing, stop using boats. Yeah. It would just be crazy. The idea of that would just be crazy. And it would almost be impossible to get them to do that. Now, if somehow using boats was immoral, we might root for Aegon to do that. But uh but you could still see the trouble he would have, even if sailing wasn't moral. It would be still really hard to get this people whose culture is based on it to stop doing
0: it. Yeah, so. agreed, agreed. Yeah, that's that's a solid example. Yeah, so it's really hard for Danny to change their ways, and it's Aegon is faced with a similar scenario. Uh, perhaps not. So many of these things aren't so deeply entrenched. He's not trying to make any any no no single change. Aegon is trying to make is as large as ending slavery in marine, probably. So that's a a worthy consideration. Now, let's look at this too. Some of these uh an opportunity, right? Some of these people who are second sons, third sons, daughters, what have you, they were like, "Well, what is my what's what's my outlook in life? I'm not going to inherit Winterfell or Highgarden or what have you. I got to go out into the world and make my own thing." Well, maybe that opportunity is at this newly formed governmental authority that Hey, maybe I can make friends with the right people like it's an opportunity. It's a there, the, no one has climbed these ladders yet. Like there are pa- ladders of power to be climbed in the Targaryen regime. But no one's really done that yet except for maybe a handful of people who were already close to Aegon prior to the, the war. And maybe a few powerful people who had gotten in his good graces in that short period of time since the end of hostilities. Like there's a Nina mentions the shave pate, someone who's like good we can finally take it to these slavers and make these changes, right? There there isn't a person like that that we know of in Westeros who's like, yeah, let's stick it to the nobility. It's about time they got taken down a peg or two. It's not really like that. So uh, there are some parallels, but there are also parallels that, that don't work. Not And not every aristocratic family is going to have a place at court, in part because they don't have anyone to send, right? Like the or, Oris Baratheon took over the house, took over house Durrandon. but there wouldn't have been a child to send anyway, even if he hadn't, right? There was the daughter who was the only heir. So they're not going to send the only heir to court. Or what if you go to the Lannisters? Tyrion says that his ancestor escaped the field of fire and bent the knee and then fathered a son for which he's duly grateful. Because if he hadn't fathered a son, Tyrion himself would never have been born. So that implies that the Lord of Castle Rock, at the time of the field of fire, did not have a son, which means that these he these came later, he may have had daughters, who knows, and th- maybe they went to court. That's an interesting o- option to consider is these opportunities at court were happening, but if a family just doesn't have children to send there, then they can't take part in this like <laughs> maybe they could send an uncle to try to like get on the council or something. But yeah, it's a funny scenario where you just, if your house is too small, you can't, you can't participate.
1: <laughs> it is interesting to think how some houses strengths might have been increased and diminished just based on that yeah. arbitrary factor in that moment. Yeah, It's
0: like, again, I think I may have even used this example before. Those of you who know the expanse, it's the term the churn. And that's when like, there's a big rearranging of things that are completely out of your control, like all, like a government rearranges itself or a war is happening and, Someone like you or Volcano me, goes we have no ability to to affect anything. All we can do is hope to survive it and then find our place in this new environment, whatever that happens to be, however it shapes out. And so this is a time, this is that level of change where it is a churn, a Westeros churn, where some people are going to be ground up in it and not survive it. Or And by survive, I don't necessarily mean they'll be killed, but they're... Their income might be destroyed. Their place in in society might be might not exist anymore. Uh, their the, some honors they had gained might not carry the same social or cultural weight that they used to. Things that you're proud of might now be negatives by a lot. Might be viewed as negatives by a lot of people. And we've seen these things happen in the real world all the time. So in terms of fosterings, just think of all the example. Let me just throw a few others out here just to set the stage a little more, like Jamie and Lord Titus Blackwood, for example. First of all, Lord Titus Blackwood, when he surrenders to Jamie in A Dance with Dragons, he's kind of nice about it, a little bit. Jamie's like, well, which hostage do you want to send? He's at First, he asks for his daughter, Bethany, and Titus is clearly disturbed by that. And he's like, well, can I send this son of mine who likes books and isn't much of a warrior? And Jamie's like, yeah, sure, you know, that's fine with me. He's like, but, but but don't but but don't forget what this is all about. You know, <laughs> like this is a hostage, and we will kill him if we ha- you know if you don't behave. And he's like, I know who I'm dealing with, Kingslayer. You know, <laughs> it's a great exchange. So Jamie w- was like, yeah, I'm going to be nice about it, but don't mistake this for softness. Don't mistake my niceness, my giving you leeway for softness, and I doubt anyone mistake or mistook Aegon's position for Safi that he's like "Yeah, send me your children send me your yeah second born it doesn't it's fine I don't need your firstborn. just send me as many as you can now the implication might be you yeah, better what, send yeah what yeah. if you don't <laughs> I might if you don't send me fosterlings I might ask for some specific ones you know <laughs> if you don't choose I might choose for you and if you outright refuse well, you don't want to do that. You don't want to. You don't want to find out what happens. You know, <laughs> if you don't do that, don't don't test the conqueror. And what would they be doing? What are these wealthy nobles, young nobles who are with no jobs? Yeah, as you write in the test, Sean, you wrote, "What
1: are these? What no jobs? Get a job." What young... the hell do any of them do? <laughs> yeah, just sit around with the land they inherited and no jobs. <laughs> I guess I some of them hopefully are being productive. I don't know, reading and training or. Funding bridges to be built <laughs> across streams and irrigation systems or something. But I feel like most of them are really wasting the resources of their, their underlings. Yeah, I
0: think a good a good amount of education and training would happen for sure. Because that just seems like the part of all noble upbringing and, and some hunting. And, you know, their, their regular pursuits, which isn't necessarily a a good thing. It's just a thing, really. It's not really that bad either. Just whatever. So, but I think the education part is interesting because this is where there's a chance for Aegon to push some of his agencies or his uh, uh, agenda, which is to get these youngsters to see the realm differently, to stop seeing it as a bunch of realms, see it as one realm. And that's a part of the education. Like if he's influencing the maesters and then having a say in what they teach these youngsters, I feel like that's at the top of the list, given what emphasis is placed on it here in the source. And we know Aegon was big on maesters. He had one. That always was with him. I think he also had one on Dragonstone. Visenya and Rainey's had their own maesters too, so they weren't sh- stinting on the maesters. So I think that says a lot about the fact that he was big on having maesters around. And one of these kids here, I think he very likely was uh, not maybe not aggressive, but forthright about educating them in a certain way. I wouldn't call it indoctrination, but it was certainly uh, it certainly had it. There was certainly a plan behind it, you know. Uh, A big question I have here is royal progresses. They were a huge part of Aegon's policy towards keeping the peace and for spreading his authority and reminding people of who he was and the cost of rebellion by confronting them face-to-face with what they'd be going up against. He placed a lot of value in them. Here's an actual rare quote from
1: Aegon himself. It's better to forestall rebellions than put them down, Aegon famously said when asked the reasons for his journeys. A glimpse of the king in all his power, mounted on Balerion, the Black Dread, and attended by hundreds of knights, glittering in silk and steel, did much to instill loyalty in restless lords. The small folk need to see their kings and queens from time to time as well, the king added, and know they might have the chance to lay their grievances and concerns before him. I want to point out this is a lesson that Rhaenyra should have learned. Yes, absolutely. After Viserys said that she was going to inherit, she flew around, you know, once every couple months to all the different lords with her dragon to remind everyone I'm going to be queen one day. She might have had more support when the time came. To be
0: fair, Book Rhaenyra did quite a lot more of this than than show Rhaenyra. Uh, Although most of it, I think, was when her father was still alive. Uh, She did. She was seen by. That's how she got the reputation for being the realm's delight and why so she had Mm. such popularity as a young as a younger person. Which is part of why she took uh, took it for granted later. Which I don't. I don't think the show brought that part out as much. But anyway, we're we're not talking show too much today. So let's let's keep it going. Given the sheer number of progresses he went on during his reign and how important he viewed them, I think they probably started this early. Right? He didn't have that much else going on besides he went to the Iron Islands that one time and sorted that out. Uh, he didn't go to the Vale. He didn't go to Dorne at least not yet and we know that he generally gave over a lot of the day-to-day ruling and building of the Aegon Fort to Visenya which would give him leave to be elsewhere possibly on some of these progresses though we're also told that he spent a lot of time back on Dragonstone uh so This is just a brief note about those progresses because we're going to speak to them a little more later uh, because they're such a bigger part of his later reign. And now we're only theorizing that they probably started this early. He's going to be making like three decades worth of progresses. And I think also there's like a lot of these things that they probably changed over time. Like how many people he brought, the type of attitude he was spreading. He was probably a little more domineering early on or a little more about showing his power later. It was more about maintaining and just keeping uh, keeping things tight rather than locking them down you know there's locking it down and then there's keeping it locked down right
1: <laughs> you can imagine over time he might have formed some genuine relationships with people too yeah that's right? true he like yeah, really befriended point. some of the other lords or soldiers and what when he went to visit them he probably like gained a lot of insights about their culture or their how their cities are structured and such things that he was worried about himself he would have uh, huge value on its own enough to just have this show of force remind everyone who's in charge, but there are all these other values to come from it
0: too. Yes, you're right. That's that's a very good point about certain lords would like plenty would suck up to him, but there would be some that actually that they actually got along, like you say, like a genuine connection, maybe even friendship. Even though Aegon perhaps wasn't big on that, <laughs> there would be a few that you know he liked more than others. We'll say. <laughs> now, as you said, he did travel with a, a lot of people, and that was expensive, but that was intentional he wasn't just throwing money away he wanted to make sure to remind people what they were up against Just very just a show of force shock and awe well just awe not shock so much because there's no one there's no no attacking here
1: (laughs) if he could bring all this just to say hey what's up what if there was war yeah what's he gonna bring (laughs) if we actually speak out against him right Yeah. yeah
0: and then they have to picture like who's going to go against this guy like so who's going to be on my side if I go against this guy like they're all yeah. <laughs> you know it's, yeah. it's a double it's a double whammy at least
1: and you know uh, to further my other point all these other people he's bringing they also can form bonds with the different people that he's visiting right yeah. the, all the soldiers that are coming from these different lands, which is again part of what he won want. he wants this intermixing of cultures he wants everyone to feel like they're part of the whole big same thing so and just like he might form a bond with a certain Lord or a certain master of arms or whatever else all his underlings and soldiers, when they go visit these other castles, form these same bonds, get these same connections, make it less likely for them to want to go a war with each other. Yeah, right. Yeah, absolutely. And
0: the other angle here is there's a few houses here and there, a few spots here and there that were given over to Valyrian nobles, Harrenhal being the main one, Quentin coheris His first wife had died three years prior to two AC, which is when he got the castle. So he married Again, to a daughter of his own new Lord Paramount, Edmund Tully. And Quentin, that's Quentin Coheris, already had a grandson and two sons, so he wasn't a young man at the time. And this is interesting just because it's a Valyrian-descended house marrying into the Riverlands, and maybe they had some silver hair, and so there was like a little bit of that going around. But it's another thing, like if you befriend this guy, Quentin Coheris, a guy who was probably pretty close to Aegon, it's an in-route to befriending the king or having a connection or just a foot in the door. And there would be a few people like that out there that were already close to Aegon and someone who's got a friendship with the king. If you can't get access to the king, well, maybe you get access to someone that's close to him and vice versa, or, or farther down the line. Maybe if you can't get access to Quentin Coheris, you get access to his master at arms and maybe work your way up. Climb. That's, this is that ladder climbing that I referred to earlier that a lot of people would be doing. And there'd be a lot of opportunity beca- for it because, again, these are new ladders that haven't been scaled yet.
1: The ladder is higher than it's ever been. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's something Aegon did. Just make a taller ladder. Yeah, it's
0: a great point. It, the ladder is higher than it's ever been. You're right. The ca- chaos is a ladder, but the ladder's height is not determined, is not the same always. Yeah. <laughs> so let's, let's return briefly to this idea of the early court and what it was like. Uh, like I said, no red keep. There was the Aegon Fort, which wasn't replaced until 35 AC. So the Aegon Fort, this log structure was there for quite a while. Aegon died in 37 AC, so he didn't really live in the Red Keep, especially because it was barely, it wasn't even finished till 45 AC. So when we discuss at court, it's difficult because it's really easy to picture all the different scenes of the Red Keep on TV (laughs) and in your book memory, because there's so many book scenes that take place at the Red Keep. But the Fort is so different. It was surely fancy as far as long hauls, but... Again, (laughs) the places these youngsters were raised showing up there. They're like, well, this is this is kind of a step down. Some foolish few might even be uh, might even say so out loud. (laughs) I'd be like, well, this is this is this is way worse than where I came from. Like, dude, shut up. (laughs) Keep that to yourself. (laughs) Here's what it actually is described as the physical description of that place from the book. Quote,
2: the crude Mott and Bailey fort that Aegon had thrown up so quickly was neither large enough nor grand enough to house the king and his court, and had begun to expand even before the conquest was complete. A new keep was erected, all of logs and fifty feet high, with a cavernous long hall beneath it, and a kitchen made of stone and roofed with slate, in case of fire, across the bailey. Stables appeared, then a granary. A new watchtower was raised, twice as tall as the older one. Soon the Aegon fort was threatening to burst out of its walls. so a new palisade was raised, enclosing more of the hilltop, creating space enough for a barracks, an armory, a sept, and a drum tower
0: so a lot going on really there
1: there was Quite a bit of construction. I want to go to the drum tower. What's the drum tower? I'd be right at home there. (laughs) Yeah. All
0: sorts of drumming. Yeah. Aegon was very big on percussion. Yeah. He was, (laughs) (laughs) he was, he was himself a drummer. Yeah. And so there's a lot going on here. Of course. It's kind of neat to see just the, the way that a new area that becomes important starts to grow is, it's kind of a fascinating process, but just imagine again, just picture yourself as one of these nobles. They don't even have a stable here. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> no stables. Wow. Like what is going on here? But then there's again, you see Balerion sitting there and you're like, yep. All right. <laughs> That's they have that instead. <laughs> they just can't get over that. Like, what would that be like? You're like a 13 year old, let's say mm, Lannister uh, at this era. There wouldn't have been a 13 year old Lannister boy. So we'll say a girl and you show up and let's say you kind of have that sense of like, excitement about this, but you haven't seen a dragon before and you're like, Oh my God <laughs> That thing <laughs> really is as big as they say and I will behave because I don't want to have to deal like Aegon's not going to feed anyone to his dragon, especially not some young girl, but she doesn't know that, you know, they're, they're going to be inventing things in their heads. And a lot of it's going to be fear. And their their father and mother would have told them to behave. And it's like a going off to boarding school or something, but it's <laughs> it's a different sort of boarding school. So a lot of people have seen this, but more and more people are getting eyes on the king. Let me quickly describe what a few of these things mean, because I think a lot of y'all probably don't know what a Mott and Bailey castle even is. Mott is not, is a raise, is raised ground. So like a hill. That the castle is built on. It can be an artificial hill or one that was already there. The bailey is the courtyard, which is walls and a ditch, meaning a moat uh, oftentimes, or it doesn't have to have a, a water in it. It's not, if, if it doesn't have water in it, it's a dry moat, but that's a ditch and a dry moat is the same thing. Walls can be made of stone or wood or what have you. Then you have a keep itself. So you have the moat, the bailey, and the actual castle slash keep. So that's what the Aegon Fort was a very basic, simple thing. Like when, for example, William, the Conqueror took England, he built lots of motte and Bailey castles all over the place to help enforce the new regime because he didn't have the threat of dragons to keep people <laughs> from re- re- <laughs> rejecting his rule. It was a lot harder for him to get the english to accept his rule <laughs> because yeah he didn't have some super weapon to intimidate everyone to uh to all hell uh so by the time he was crowned at old town king's landing was quote several thousand souls but the book and the book has some fun descriptions of specific buildings that went up we'll, we'll check in later in 10 years and 20 years to see how far it's come along but fort had walls, but King's Landing itself did not. And it would be hard to build walls around it because, like, well, how big is it going to get? Where do you put the walls? Where, like, how much expansion room do you leave? And they were probably a little bit, I don't say arrogant, but probably not too worried about it. Like, who's going to attack? Of all the places to attack, why would you attack the place where there's one to three dragons? Well, you might attack when those dragons are gone. That's the answer. You probably wouldn't do it while they're there. So if you could have intelligence on when they're going to be gone and how long they're going to be gone that might be your opportunity. And that is going to come up later. Uh so keep that in mind.
1: You also have to worry about smaller scale things too like you know maybe like the stormland is going to uh organize an assault on King's Landing but Seven bandits in the woods might run in and try to got all these resources gathered there now. So someone's going to come steal some horses or chickens or whatever. So you need to have some sort of security
0: or some horse chickens. They might steal the horse chickens. <laughs> you know, I would I would be targeting those because, yeah
1: i go for the chicken horses (laughs) not as not as fast but not as big it's easier to grab yeah those are kind of like (laughs) bitter
0: steel's uh sigil right the chicken horses yeah (laughs) you just slight (laughs) alteration to the wings make them look more chickeny less dragony there you go so there was no like i said there was a small council but it wasn't fully formed it's it's effect on the king wasn't fully established the roles were still being defined there wasn't yet a grand maester it would happen in the year five so we're close to that and it was aegon's idea each of aegon and rainies like i said had their own maester so they were big on that Uh, so there's just lots of growth right land sea Valarian and ships were there often and over time that expanded you'd see more ships from duskendale and gulltown and other spots like that just up and up and more and more so We'll be coming back to this once more time has passed to check in on this growth, like I said, and to watch the burgeoning capital of Westeros. Some smart people really got a leg up. You got to think, Sean, like imagine being one of the first guys to like open a a shop there in the city that's eventually going to be the largest in Westeros in a pretty short time. Like you could open it in the year 5 AC and by the year 25 AC, the city's like 100,000 people or more and your business is probably booming. You probably just like, but that was a great decision. Like a life changing decision that worked out really well. Some smart people, some ambitious people really like really made their, really would have made their fortunes by moving to King's Landing when it was young. And then later too, but especially the the, the new people.
1: I, I can't help but want to point out though whether you were lucky to happen to be there or smart enough to realize how important it was to be there, it still takes more. You still have to do the work. You have to grow with the business. You have to make that that type of growth would have had a lot of adjustments in 20 years, right? So a lot of people might have screwed it up and not taken advantage of that opportunity if they didn't work hard enough or have enough vision. So Right on. Yeah. And when you have a city full of people who are working hard with a lot of vision, that's a, that's a good scenario.
0: Yeah. I bet it was a pretty optimistic time. I think there might have been like a nice vibe in King's Landing where a lot of people were, you know, nodding to each other on the street and Smiling and being like, "Yeah, this is this is going to be good." You know, the 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 outlook was probably very positive. I mean, you're building a new city. That seems like a really good thing. You know, like for the most part, yeah, cities have their problems, but it's still an exciting process, probably to be a part of. It's something that, like, in the modern world, it's hard to imagine. Like, this, all this, most of the cities are already there. (laughs) You know, I'm sure there's some some of us out there, some of you out there, probably lived in a have either lived in a small town that grew a lot larger, or maybe the opposite, a, a town that shrank because some large industry left or multiple industries or something like that. Um, Yeah, so if this uh, story of early King's Landing touches on some of your own experiences, feel free to share them with us. We love hearing from you all, especially about things that relate directly to the material. So, Sean, you, for the last few times that you've been describing your drink, you've said you've got Magic Mind in there. How's that working for you? Is it uh, you may- making a difference in your life? Is it mm, you-, you noticing anything, uh, improvement in anything like that?
1: Sometimes it's hard to measure because there's so many other parts of your diet and your activity and everything. Um, but it's not been negative in any way. And I do feel like I've had more energy at the gym. Ooh. I don't even know if that's something that they would like, Put out there as a benefit because I think it's supposed to be more of like a creative uh, stimulant or whatever. But I feel like I have more energy at the gym. I don't get as tired. I'm not as worn out afterwards. So that's cool. It's a positive for sure. Yeah.
0: We have read, and maybe I mentioned this already, but we have read that there are a lot of anecdotal customer reports of positive experiences of people who've had long COVID. And that really fits with this description of something that is meant to help stimulate parts of your brain.
2: Yeah, and I enjoyed looking at the Facebook comments on their posts because there was often just just people who posted it worked for me or not. And yeah, I was pleasantly surprised to see some folks who were like, I've been really low energy since COVID and they found it to be somewhat helpful.
0: I would guess it's pretty helpful for other forms of mild illnesses. Not that COVID is always mild, but sometimes it is. And long COVID is pretty serious, but the day to day symptoms are the problem is they linger for so long, not that they're necessarily debilitating, although there are some people in that scenario, and I, I certainly feel for you if you're one of those folks. But in terms of uh, minor picking up or just something that this gives you a little boost, 5, 10, 15 percent in your day, a little more energy, a little like Sean said, maybe that tr- manifests as physical energy. I've seen that before in myself, like sometimes I'm more creative because of my mood, but sometimes, yeah, I just some days I have more energy for exercise than others, and I, I don't know what it is, but I think a lot of times it's pretty, pretty obviously coming from diet and and what you're intaking, what nutrients you've taken in. And Magic Mind is just full of really positive uh, ingredients that are really good for your brain and other aspects of your body. Now, this January this is a good time for it because you know a lot of this is New Year's, this is New Year's resolution season, and to me, resolutions are more about targets than goals. I think you should be a little easy with yourself like be try to make improvements in your life but don't set yourself up to be disappointed when you if you don't make it or if you come up a little short targets are better than goals because the target you're okay if you're close to the target like if you aim for a bullseye and hit the outer ring that's fine you got pretty close that's that's still an improvement in your life even if it's not quite what you aimed for it's still something to, to be proud of and say hey my, i'm a little better than i was before So crush your 2024 New Year's resolutions by being a little bit more focused when you take them on. You get one month for free when you're subscribing for three months at magicmind.com slash Jan Westeros. That's J-A-N Westeros. And if you add the code Westeros20, it's an extra 20% off, which gets you to around 75% off. That's only good this January 2024. So hurry up before that deal goes away get those benefits in, get yourself a subscription and see how it works for you. I would be optimistic that it would make some changes in your life. That's magicmind.com slash Jan Westeros and use the code Westeros20. All right. Let's talk marriages. We talked about fosterings and how a lot of these young people at court would be going there in this brave new world, maybe a chance to move up in the world, at least learning new things. And there's lots of different ways this can play out but for some of them it's going to result in marriages i mean that's in most of their futures anyway marriages amongst the nobility is well it's rare that you see people not get married in the year 2 ac cerise hightower was born she's an important figure during the time of king Magor. after all she was his first wife and it's the first targaryen hightower marriage and of course that's well before the dance of the dragons but it is a bit of hmm, setup or at least foreshadowing for that so Speaking of, Aegon's big on creating alliances, big on creating peace and fostering relationships between his new regime and the existing houses. So, of course, arranged marriages are obviously going to be a big part of this. That's an always longstanding traditional method of creating alliances is by creating new families. These families which have connections to prior existing families and still bear those same surnames. The right of marriage is a major power granted to kings, queens, lords, and ladies. We've seen that, like, it's their explicit right. You know, you cannot marry without permission uh, for the most part, even when you're a commoner. Like, Roose Bolton points that out in his really gross description of Ramsay's mother is his excuse was that they married without his permission. So this is very important. Political marriages are very valuable in terms of keeping the peace and or gaining and or holding power. Let's hear from the book directly on this one.
2: The Targaryens also brokered many marriages between noble houses from the far ends of the realm in hopes that such alliances would help tie the conquered lands together and make the seven kingdoms one. Aegon's queens, Visenya and Rhaenys, took a special delight in arranging these matches. Through their efforts, young Ronald Arryn, Lord of the Eerie, took a daughter of Torrhen Stark of Winterfell to wed, whilst Lauren Lannister's eldest son, heir to Casterly Rock, married a red wine girl from the Arbor.
0: Now, recall what I said about the Lannister son there. He said, "Lauren Lannister's eldest son. Well, remember what Tyrion's quote seems to indicate that Lauren Lannister had no sons at the time of the Field of Fire, but, you know, Aegon's reign is 37 years long. So certainly kids could have been born. And at this point, it says Lauren Lannister's eldest son. So there was at least two sons by the time this marriage happened. So this one was probably much later in the reign, probably not during this one years, one to four, almost certainly much later on. But the Winterfell Erie ma- match seems to have been early because Rainis arranged it for one thing. That's a clue because Rhaenys isn't going to survive the the full reign of Aegon. So that narrows down the timeline significantly. So whenever Rhaenys arranges a marriage, we know that it has to have happened in the first decade. But if Visenya marriages uh, arranges it well, then the gap is much wider. So now, it was a big to-do, this marriage between Stark and Arryn. The Arryns, as far as we know, didn't complain about it, at least not until much later, and it might not have been related at all. But Lord Torrhen did not like the idea. He was willing to bend the knee to Aegon, but this whole marrying his daughter to the, the Vale, he rejected. He's like, no, I don't want to do this. Somehow he was convinced and I really, really wonder what the convincing was because it was very unpopular in Winterfell like it wasn't just him that was against it. His sons didn't attend and they were also upset about the whole bending the knee thing, which they were probably wrong about. But that certainly seems to have fueled their anger over this marriage because it's just more of more capitulation, more giving in, more accepting foreign authority in their minds. So, and they're young and, you know, full of energy or whatever, and not very full of wisdom, probably. But still, like, what could Rhaenys have said? Like, I, you know, what I don't think she gave them anything. Like, we're well, we going to give you some money to accept this. I mean, maybe, but I don't know what she could have possibly said to change his mind that wasn't a veiled threat. <laughs> you know like what do you have any ideas here Sean like what? how do you convince someone this is like I don't want to do this but and you have nothing really to offer but except you you do have authority over them like it's tricky here
1: I've got a few ideas like maybe she didn't directly give them money but she might have not taken more money okay she might have mm. said like all right we're gonna raise your taxes five percent then mm. for example right okay. uh, or yeah. she might have said all right well here's who we are going to marry him to then right they might have she might have set up other marriages it would have been worse politically or strategically or whatever for the north I, I think there's all kinds of ways that she could have without even using direct violence made things worse for the north yeah and there's a carrot and a stick it's like or if you do do this then you get this sort of alliance we give you this tax break we mm. don't ask you to send troops to this war whatever, whatever. I, I can see all sorts of uh, ways it would have added. Also, I suspect he might not have been really that against it. He just knew that other people would. And he kind of had to be against it for show to make his sons happy. Maybe he, he, uses he his maybe leverage. knew he was going to break down eventually anyway. If
0: by protesting, maybe he gets something out of it. Yeah, it's like, well, I, yeah, yeah if, I if, he just, if he just if he just says yes, then, you know, he gives up an opportunity to, to negotiate and get get some sort of yeah recompense. That's a good... Yeah, so that's pretty good. Now, again, come back to Ned and Sansa. Ned was not excited about marrying Sansa to Joffrey. Not even... Not because Joffrey's Joffrey. She had no idea what kind of personality Joffrey had. He just didn't want to marry her to the throne at all. And meanwhile, Sansa was all for it. Again, at the time, she didn't know what she was getting into fully, but she's like, yeah, I want to do that. Now, if you're a young Stark girl in this new world of the Starks are no longer kings and queens, well... An arranged marriage, if she's being realistic, she knows she's going to get married to somebody. They're going to make her marry somebody like, well, getting married to the veil. You could do a lot worse than that. So maybe she was all for it. Maybe not. I don't know. Like this is a completely imaginary person who we know zero about their personality or even how old they were. But if we're exploring the range of options here, you can imagine that she would have at least noticed that it could have been a lot worse.
1: <laughs> yeah. That not only is the veil prestigious, wealthy, whatever, but also they're closer to home. Yeah. Like, uh, you wanna get married to someone from the Iron Islands? Like, what are your, that's another thing that they might've just discussed. Like, like you said, you know, you're getting married eventually, what are your options? Who do you think it's gonna be? Let's run through them. What are the pros and cons? Like this one we're proposing is the best one anyway, right? And Torrent could see this, even though it upsets his sons, not to mention, like you said, he could get some angle from the negotiation he she might have other veiled threats in there or ways to manipulate things to make it better or worse for him but just the other potential candidates just running through the list might have been enough to convince him so
0: yeah that's true that's very true now as similar as it might seem on the surface meaning the marriages and fosterings is something that we're all very familiar with is actually a huge difference in after the conquest versus before especially for great houses. Let's talk about them individually. First, marriages, okay? If you're a Lannister princess and you marry a Reign, House Reign Lordling, that's no big deal. Sure, there's exceptions like Tywin, but they're extremely rare. You don't go against your king except in extreme circumstances in part because they're almost always far more powerful than you, so you need a lot of help to to even consider doing so. And in the case of the West, Castle Rock is just overwhelming in terms of its uh its its position. Uh, As a holder of power and wealth, it's just so hard to take on Castle Rock. If a Lannister princess married a prince of the Reach now, this could be really good for peace between those two regions, right? Remember, this is pre conquest we're talking about. But it can be awkward because war between the Reach and the Rock was not uncommon. So, what if you're that princess? Your family is now the enemy, the family you just came from. It's not great for your husband and children either, of course, because your husband is caught between two worlds. Your children are of that other family, too. Again, we come back to Sansa. In her case, she was not technically yet married to Joffrey, so that helped her get out of the situation, but it was still very much the same. Like, she's at court. At first, she's proud to be there and everyone's happy to have her there for the most part but then all of a sudden her family is viewed as traitors and she's like uh everyone's like looking at her funny and no one wants to talk to her because they don't want to be associated with treason and joffrey's picking on her even worse than he was before abusing her worse than he was before it's not like cersei's being very nice either so it just really flipped on its head and that was one of many things that went bad for sansa at court so Using her as an example, this would have happened many times in the history of the Seven Kingdoms on a smaller scale. Without an Iron Throne, it could still happen. Like, these pre-kind of marriage. A Highgarden-Rock marriage. Well, the ra- House Reign isn't very likely to try to take on Castle Rock, but Highgarden might. So these wars aren't, like, stymied by... The fact that it would be insane to do it. Highgarden, it's not insane for Highgarden to go to war with the Rock, but it might be insane for for House Rain to do so. So, hmm, yeah.
1: A little bit of a tangent, but I do want to point out, a lot of times these marriages are sort of like the fosterings that- Yes. They're a hostage. They're really a hostage, you know? Yeah, <laughs> like, they kind of are. Hopefully you fall in love. Hopefully it maintains peace, but it, it's what it sort of comes down to.
0: Especially during the betrothal phase. Once the marriage actually happens, right. and once there's children in the mix, it's it's a, it's harder to consider that. You know, you're, you're killing your own people at that point, if you execute a, a girl that has already fathered children in your dynasty. That's, you can't go that, that's, that's too far at that point. But you're right, before that phase, like the phase Sansa was in when it wasn't too late, then there's a lot of risk. You're right. And and it is more of a hostage situation. So and it's not also it's not like marriages from one kingdom to another were common anyway. In the in the era of pre-conquest, it's not like kings of the rock married their daughters to princes of Highgarden very often, but it, it would have happened sometimes. But now it started happening often because the targaryens were making it happen they were forcing it to happen they were like you don't have a choice just like if the kings of Highgarden were like okay house Oakhart, you're marrying house hightower they were like yep all right that's what we're doing you know they might protest and like like the starks did to get a little negotiating room but ultimately they're going to pretty much have to do it and the same thing is true here the targaryens are going to make you do it you might not want to say no But there's a lot less risk because it's like an it's like an escrow situation where your son and your daughter, the son and the daughter, are both held by the king and the queen, not by the other house. Like you either have the Lannister girl at a hostage at Highgarden or vice versa. But here they're both at the well. I was going to say the Red Keep, the Aegon Fort, (laughs) and that means neither side has them as a hostage. The king has them as a hostage, which he's unlikely to execute either of them because it's not really in his best interest so they both can feel a lot safer with that arrangement than they could have in the seven kingdoms era because there's not this awkwardness of constant border skirmishes and and minor wars that break out where these families get put in awkward positions as vis-a-vis their prior connections instead it's all done under the auspices of house targaryen which guarantees the peace between both sides because again of their dragons mostly because the dragons other things too but that's the big one Fosterings, it's very simple. It's just huge that it can build important relationships. So the relationships generally won't be as strong as a marriage. But sometimes they're close. Robert and Ned were great friends. They weren't as close as spouses. But there were pretty big friendship there. Pretty important.
1: You could argue that relationship was closer than a lot of marriages. Like
0: Maybe, yeah.
1: Ned did abandon his home and family to go down to King's Landing He put his life and other people's life on the line to try to do what he thought was right for Robert. You know, it was... It's hard to get much stronger than what he was doing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think it was probably more, um, more for Ned than for Robert. Although to be fair, it was Catelyn's idea for Ned to go in the book and Ned's in the show. That that's one thing that gets confusing because it's reversed, but either way, you're right. I mean, that's, you're, you're right. Either way.
1: It was strong enough that Robert expected him to go. Even if it turned out to be, uh, Caitlin pushing it. Robert took his whole court to the north to visit his old war buddy. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. I mean, and look at some of the examples
0: of fostering that just have a huge impact on the character in both positive and negative ways. Theon, I mean, huge example there. I mean, Theon's a massive example, maybe even the biggest, because it plays out. We see it, some of it play out in front of us, whereas Ned and Robert's a big one. But that's all in the past. We don't see it play out. We just see the effect of it. We see it 15, 20 years later. Jamie, we get a little of both because... We see in his POV, we see some of his thoughts on that, like flashbacks to when he was a page and a squire and is now in a position to have many pages and squires of his own who were sent to him by a lot of houses that want to get in good with the Lannisters. So think about that. How many houses are trying to get in good with the Lannisters now that they're the kings and queens, right? Now that they're the royal house, well, this would have been the same scenario here with Aegon and Visenya and Rhaenys where they're like, a lot of houses are like eager to send their young kids to get in good with the new regime it's not just like we better do this or we're going to be in trouble no it's like we should do this it's good for us or at least it's good for this of our this one child of ours
1: it's another carrot stick type thing
0: yes and you would rather anyone wise enough to see it that way would be like well I would rather have the carrot. You know, it's not good for my pride necessarily, but the pri- but the carrot beats the stick every time if you're faced with it. If you have the your wherewithal way- beats
2: the, the <laughs> carrot,
0: actually. <laughs> good point. Yeah, the stick is the one that beats. You're right. Yeah, you gotta- Carrots are for eating. Sticks are for beating. <laughs> eating, beating, you you see, it's an easy mistake to make.
1: I don't know how you handle your carrot, but
2: <laughs> you beat your carrot. Well, we're getting into oh, euphemisms here.
0: <laughs> <laughs> dang where is this going so now and then compare to danny again we're, co- we're back to danny and marine uh, who also has lots of maybe not pages and squires but lots of cup and handmaidens and stuff like that here's a quote
2: we must keep them safe as well i will have two children from each of them from the other pyramids as well a boy and a girl
1: hostages said shakaz happily
2: pages and cupbearers if the great masters make objection explain to them that in westeros it is a great honor for a child to be chosen to serve at court
0: yep <laughs> it's that is a that is a major parallel right there except for that the difference would be that a lot of the great masters would uh, make wouldn't wouldn't be as excited about this as a lot of the lords and ladies of westeros would be like oh opportunity The great masters are like, "Ah, I don't know if this is opportunity or not. You know, some of them might see it that way, but others are like, we're all working to overthrow this lady. So we might not want our children there when this all goes down. So maybe we don't want our kids there. But the the lords of Westeros, for the most part, aren't planning rebellion.
2: But some of those, you're right, some of those great masters might realize that... Oh hey, I'm trying to set up a marriage for my young son, and maybe he can meet someone and make a connection. Or they might see that they can uh, mingle.
0: I feel like the lesser houses would be to them; they'd see it as an opportunity to to move up. Yeah. On the ladder, whereas the the ones with the most to lose and nowhere to go up would be the ones that would be
1: resistant. To follow that up, uh, the ladder thing we were talking earlier, and another I don't know contrast between Danny and Aegon is that. He built a bunch of new ladders, and the ladders that were there before got higher than they were before, yeah, Danny is just like one new ladder that might be a little bit higher, maybe, <laughs> right? Some ladders got knocked down. like it's yeah. uh it's not as clear and obvious all these benefits that you're going to get from getting in good with Danny as it was with Aegon.
0: That's a great point because Aegon was there to stay, whereas they they kind of know Danny is going to leave eventually. For Westeros, right? So there's that. And even if yeah. she I was going to stay, Danny knows
2: she's going to leave eventually, right? Yeah. Like it's not like they're saying something that she's not a- going to agree with. True,
1: that's true. And and even if she was going to stay, she's staying in this place that at least in a short term is getting kind of torn down, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and I think it's worth it for the morality, and in the long run will probably be bigger. But in Westeros, things are clearly better immediately. Like there's this whole new city being built. There's peace all around. He, he's investing, he's, there's all these new, good, positive things from almost every angle are happening, whereas for Danny it's, it's just turmoil. It's just turmoil and people resisting, and she hasn't brought this whole new advancement of their society or peace. They had peace already, you know what I mean? It's, uh. Yeah, But for the people in charge, it are going to be the nobles getting kids or whatever. For the average person, it might be better. But even for them, it wasn't clearly obviously better. So yeah, yeah. She's in a much tougher scenario in a million different ways.
0: I agree. It's it's There are a lot of parallels, but there's also a lot of differences. The dragons are not that large. They're not that intimidating. So they're, the slavers aren't as worried about that. You're right as well that I think I'd say that slavers bay is a lot more corrupt uh, than... Westeros, plenty of things wrong with Westeros. We've criticized plenty of social institutions. You can criticize plenty of cultural attitudes. But I think you could, I think most people look at Maureen as worse just for the, just because of slavery, which is a fair <laughs> estimation, in my opinion. So yeah, it's a lot, a lot bigger difference.
1: And to give Danny credit, because some of this might sound like she's messing up and you know maybe she is, but my point is that she has this difficult, righteous goal. Mm-hmm which maybe Aegon had too, but his goal basically is to like unite this land for the sake of future prosperity, where her goal is to end slavery. And I think her goal is tougher. Does that make sense? I I think it's more important and more tough.
0: Yes, I absolutely agree with that. Yeah. And, and you can see like in this lesson of Danny gets us back to Aegon and why he was Maybe cautious of not that he learned from her, obviously, but <laughs> he saw into the future and saw Danny's troubles in Marine and was like, you know what? I'm going to handle Westeros differently. No, uh, he didn't want to make change too many things too quickly. And like, I, you know, one of those examples of them was like, uh, he, maybe he should have changed first night, like as quickly as possible, because that is an ugly, ugly institution. It was addressed later, but he was more concerned about things that would start wars. And as bad as first night is, it's probably not going to start any wars. It's just, it's just a really awful thing that happens to peasants. But I don't think it's ever started a war. So that's probably why he put it on a, on a lower uh, rung of... Priority. the all, the overall point is he's not trying to rock the boat. Now, da- Danny is rocking the boat a lot because there's bigger problems there. There's more reforming that's needed, like you said. And yeah, uh, as aggressive as he Aegon was on the battlefield, he was not as aggressive. Uh, it was more of a soft. He, he was more soft power, like do what we want or else. But he's not. He's relying on them not to test the or else. <laughs> and for the most part, they don't. Whereas in Danny, they do. They they call her bluff on the children hostages. She's like, Danny's not going to kill these t- children. We can we can make a move, and she will decide not to kill these children because she's Danny. And they were right. She they they break some of the deals, and she's like, Yeah, I'm not killing these children. So uh, Danny probably should have handled that differently in the first place. <laughs> but that's that's another story. But good on her for not killing children, obviously.
1: I also. I'm pretty sure, uh, that first night wasn't as pervasive as a problem. It wasn't like every lawyer was doing it to every, that's, peasant, that's true. Right? Yeah, there was way more slavery than yeah. first night. Yeah, right? that's <laughs> very
0: true as well. You're right. Like, yeah, slavery first night was sort of kept on the down low, even when it was allowed and, and slavery is the policy of their government. Like the main, like they're right. they're yeah. they're the harpy carries chains, you know, <laughs> it's like sh- shackles. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's It couldn't be more blatant than that, but it wasn't just, uh, marriages, of the great houses visenya and Rainis were making marriages for other ranking houses and even people who didn't have much rank at all quote
2: when three girls triplets were born to the even star of tarth queen Rainis arranged betrothals for them with house Corbray, house hightower and house harlaw Queen Visenya brokered a double wedding between House Blackwood and House Bracken, rivals whose history of enmity went back centuries, matching a son of each house with a daughter of the other, to seal a peace between them. And when a Rowan girl in Rainice's service found herself with child by a scullion, the queen found a knight to marry her in White Harbor and another in Lannisport who was willing to take on her bastard as a fosterling.
0: So it should follow as well that while houses like the Starks and the Lannisters, the great houses, have some ability to object to these marriage negotiations or to at least use, get a little leverage through their objection because their objection won't hold. These lesser houses don't really have much say here at all. They're just like, yep, okay. Well, we're we're doing what you say. The wording makes it sound like those Tarth triplets were betrothed, like, right away. Because it says when three girls were born. <laughs> it, it, you would think, that actually, those betrothals would come later when they're a little older. But maybe not. Maybe they're just, like, jumping all over this, like, getting ahead of it. Uh, and if that's the case, then it really implies a lot of aggression here, really, in making these matches. Like, they were finding any unmarried children, no matter how young they were and making betrothals or marriages and just doing as much as possible. But it, it could be an unintended meaning the way that f- sentence was written. And maybe these girls were betrothed at a more typical age. Looking at the choices, though, it's not exactly an equal outcome for these triplets, right? One girl has to go to Harlaw and she's probably like, really, I got to go to the Iron Islands while one of my sisters gets to go to the high tower. Come on. That's not fair. but. Eh, yeah, her family might not have been happy with it either, but again, they have little they could do about it. Now, it's possible the Ironborn had a little more prestige than we think of because of the Heron and his ancestors had so recently been so dominant. But in general, people look down on the Iron Isles. Harlow, to be fair, is the richest of all the Iron Isles, of all the all the houses in the, in the Iron Isles, perhaps. But it would still be remote, especially... Or maybe not to a person born on tarth since they're both islands but that's the other side of westeros you know an island on one on the east versus an island on the west despite the incongruity of hightower versus harlaw it's yet another hightower marriage so that's interesting and Corbrey, that's perfectly cromulent match on paper i suppose hopefully she didn't get someone like lynn Corbrey though as a, as a husband that wouldn't be great
1: if the girls were older they may have had some choice
0: like which of them got to do which? like they
1: yeah they drew like short straw yeah of those- was intrigued by pirates and wanted to go to the iron islands or something like that's that. that's true you know,
0: maybe but, you never know
1: <laughs> and I, I wonder too if it was like a an opportunity they jumped on because it was triplets mm. you know if they were if they're like we have these three houses we need to find some <gasps> triplets that's it perfect you know or yeah it
0: is a very unusual thing triplets it's, yeah like that's, that's super it's rare. also
1: unusual that this is like pointed out to us this is an anecdote that's included in the history so I I I do kind of think it's like you're saying is to demonstrate the aggressiveness they were they had with these marriage arrangements. Yeah.
0: Also, of course, this Bracken Blackwood marriage is very notable. Now, it's one made by Visenya, so it's potentially much later in Aegon's reign, but it's very important. So let's look at it. Re- regardless of when it happened, it would have a similar effect. Now, we need to look back at some recent history in the Riverlands to set the stage here with this context. The Brackens and Blackwoods, of course, had gone to war many times in history, but there had been one fairly recently, just before the conquest, less than a decade before the conquest. Now, normally, they'd have been allowed to go at it, just go ahead and fight each other. But they went too far. They were a bit foolish with it. Go figure, a war went too far. Oh, that never happens, right? But they disturbed their liege lord's plans. Specifically, they caused a delay in the building of Harrenhal. That's a no-no. Harren the Black would have not would have normally just, yeah, go ahead, fight each other. I don't care. But because their war interrupted the building of Harrenhal, he got very upset. And he had been waiting a while. Remember, it took four decades to make that castle. And this was past the three-decade mark. He might have been a bit anxious about getting it done before he died of old age or something like that. Now, the real irony to the completion of Harrenhal, of course, is much more brutal. But I digress. King Heron put a stop to the Blackwood Bracken War and punished them both further, which we're not told what that punishment meant, but it was probably violent uh, and and strong and heavy handed, perhaps. This, along with the losses, suffered from them fighting each other, which apparently got out of hand because it was uh, pretty violent, maybe more so than a usual conflict between Bracket and Blackwood. So they both fell back into a time of loss of proceed. Like they were recovering from this double whammy of fighting each other and getting punished by King Heron. This is a big part of why, if you recall, the Tullys were at the forefront when the opportunity to switch to King Aegon over King Heron came along. Because those two usual suspects, suspects suspects the Brackens and Blackwoods, lacked their usual strength in order to, you know, they had to sit back. Of course, neither Bracken nor Blackwood took casualties during the conquest because of this. So that was the the good side of that for them. So by the time this interim phase that we're focusing on today came around, they had probably recovered. Like a whole other generation of, of people would have been born by then, and, and the young men would have grown up, and the young women would have grown up. And again, this marriage could have happened, like, 33 ac or something it could happen much later uh down the line so the brackens and blackwoods would have both had numerous famous figure, or rather they have over time had many famous figures at court over the years like you know bitter and blood raven of course those come along much later but there were people earlier than that too maybe visenya's marriage which was again a double marriage one son from each house one daughter from each house might have helped set up it might have even been made between individuals who were already at court you may have been like the may have seen them day to day here and there and been like you know what these 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 people these brackens and blackwoods are always arguing they're always fighting i know let's make them marry <laughs> that'll that'll put a stop to that and you wonder like where the brackens and blackwoods at court like were they fighting each other? Were they like not associate? Were they just keeping their distance? So it'd be interesting to see how they behaved in a neutral but highly controlled environment like, like court.
1: That's what I was gonna say that this younger generation, you know, we don't exactly know how young they were, but they probably weren't 30 years old, you know, whether they were seven or 17, but they still were removed from the biases that they would have had at home. Yes. They would have gotten to know the people from the other houses for who they were, not for what their house was. And they maybe hadn't been told the stories or uh, or as many of the stories or whatever stories they have been told might not be enough to overcome the personal connection they have with the other mm. individual standing in front of them. That's a know? good point. So I, it would be a good way, especially there may be the more extreme example brackets Braxton Blackwoods, but all these people at court are getting this opportunity to meet each other's people without all these biases of their houses in their histories yeah which is aegon's intention right. right he's trying to hey we're all from westeros not the stormlands or the brackens or whatever
0: and you're right and that's that's really important because it, and it's again i repeat that it's at a neutral location they're not like all they're not at the court of of high where the bias is pretty tilted towards reach culture and favoring the reach and etc so this is yeah this is a neutral new spot and and that's really important a bracken knight would some 40 plus years later or so join maegar Magor's kingsguard let's not forget that's visenya's son and the white cloaks were her creation so there's another kind of tie in here then again that same bracken knight would again eventually flip to (laughs) jaharis but so did a lot of people And then again, again, another Bracken would fight against Magor in his famous Trial by Seven at the beginning of his reign. So, yeah, the Brackens are just popping up all over. That's how they do. They're a big house. Speaking of children and marriages, let's think of and and of Magor. There's the oft-repeated note that Aegon spent ten nights with Rhaenys for every one with Visenya. I would guess that became a thing of note because so much depended on whatever children were produced from one or both of the royal unions. We talked about this a while ago, and the tension and the anxiety would just be building with every year that passed without any sort of issue whatsoever from this royal house. No kids. That's it's going to make people nervous, like as amazing as this new regime was shaping up and all the opportunities it was creating. There's there's got to be some sense of this could all fall apart if they don't have someone to pass it down to. That is a clear choice. If There's any doubt in the succession, which there definitely will be if there's no kids at all. It could turn. It could all just go belly up, and all this this new piece could turn into
1: a massive continent wide civil war. One option they might have had, I, however much people thought about this, is they could rather than like pass the throne on to someone, they get to pass the dragons on to someone, and that might not be so easy either. They might not be able yeah. to pick the person they think will be a wise leader, and then also have that person bond with the dragon. That might not be so easily said than done. But everyone doesn't necessarily understand that. So I, I wonder if that tempered the concern about whether or not there was an error with a, a little bit of maybe the error doesn't matter. It's who gets the dragons that matters. So.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. That, that would be on their minds too. They'd be like, well, who, who's going to be able to ride these dragons, especially Balerion? You know, like what's, what's going to happen there? And then there, were, there would have been some new dragons being born around this time and just before as well. So even though those dragons might not be immediately an issue you could look forward. People could think ahead 10 to 20 years and be like, well, that dragon will
1: be an issue later. Uh, Almost like a, a bastard child or something like that might be an issue one day. A, a baby dragon might be an issue one day. <laughs> yeah.
0: Looking into the minutia of this, and we're going to take a, another look at this later as well. There'll be a lot of times that this comes up because it's such an important thing, especially with some of the chicanery, some of the trickery that might have gone in the background. Is like, which queen do you, like, ingratiate yourself with if you're going to do either? Because who's going to have a son first? <laughs> you're like, well, the one that has a son first is probably going to pre- rise in prestige. And if one has a son and one has a daughter, it's pretty obvious those two are going to get married. M- though maybe not, but it would have been an obvious possibility, I guess. Was all- So there might be a little competition there. We don't hear about it. There's no, like, oh, Rainey's a Veneer racing to have a kid first. But it- it's... It can't have not entered their minds. It can't not have been something that occurred to them. And it certainly occurred to other people. Like, and Rainey's was said to surround herself with handsome young men, including in her bedchambers, which is like, well, that's suspicious. There's a few ways to interpret Rainey's having handsome young men in her bedchambers. The first is just that there's nothing to see here, that she wasn't sleeping with them, so nothing happened at all. Maybe she did sleep with one or more of them, but didn't get pregnant, so it doesn't matter. The big possibility, though, is that Aenes, the son she bears, eventually. And there's also a possibility that Magor wasn't Aegon's. So I did. I wrote a video for Indie Geek on that. Uh, this possibility, whether Aegon was potentially sterile or something like that, and uh, how it's very possible. Now, if it's true that Rhaenys was trying to create a child and to create an heir through a different man and be able to say, hey, this is Aegon's child, you know, to get pregnant and be able to claim it's Aegon's heir. It's a huge risk if you're sleeping with brown-haired people, (laughs) right? (laughs) It's not like, like Rhaenyra was sort of able to get away with it. I mean, she didn't really get away with it, but she sort of was able to get away with it because she had brown-haired ancestors on her mother's side. So it wasn't completely out of, the realm of possibility that didn't really exist here. Rainis did not have brown haired ancestors that we know of. So there would be no way to explain it at all. It would be like, I don't know. This kid just has brown hair. It just happened. It's just random, you know, so it would be very suspicious, much harder to explain. So Rainis probably isn't dumb enough to, to take that risk. It's entirely possible she was surrounding herself with silver-haired young, handsome young men, though, which would both increase the suspicion and make it more possible that she got pregnant with one of them. And these rumors, this isn't our rumor. This is an in-world rumor that existed that she might have been sleeping, she might have been sleeping around with some of these men. These rumors started before the conquest, but... They would have mattered more after because there would be a lot more spotlight on the queens and, and Aegon in general. And as I said, the situation of the lack of heirs would just keep getting more and more tense and more notable. So whoever the queen is spending her time with is going to put more eyes on the situation. There's more at stake, right? So, yeah, so that's a really interesting situation that if there's ever a TV show for this era, it would be a big deal because they'd have to show this tension between the queens and it would be a little bit similar in some ways to the Dance of the Dragons. But like earlier in that phase, because when the dance starts, when the TV show starts, you know, Viserys already has children. Uh, So yeah. It would build up. It'd be like so
1: many other factors that could be involved there too, because it could be that one of the queens didn't want to have kids, or didn't want the attention, or wasn't attracted to Aegon, or you could just imagine the infinite different ways they you know it might not have been contentious between the queens. And and another thought I had too is like if some people were like trying to get in good with one queen or the other say you chose the wrong queen and the other one has a child and they up in prestige well okay so i'm in good with the third most powerful person instead of the second most powerful person you're still (laughs) okay you're still doing all right yeah (laughs) (laughs) it's not like
0: they're gonna go to war with each other their descendants will but you know they didn't hopefully yeah (laughs) (laughs) so here's a, a great thorough both theory slash idea from frequent listener, occasional commenter, Kat Ovivas, who is a real-life gynecologist and has some ideas, like I said, on this this situation here with the lack of children and what she calls genetic peculiarities. Now, we know, and she acknowledges in the second sentence of this this letter that she sent us, that real-world genetics, you can't just strictly take those as what's happening here. They're clearly not happening here because the Targaryen family line uh, is, is been incestuous to a greater degree than pretty much anything in the real world. And there's magic in there. We know there's magic in there. So it can't be strictly taken as a one-to-one relationship. Nevertheless, there are similarities to real-world incest that happens in the Targaryen family tree, such as the proneness of stillborn children, the... uh frequency of infertility, the fact that some of these just don't have kids. And Aegon is a potential example here. And she says, in real world intermarriages between close relatives, that enhances the risk of genetic diseases. And if a family carries a gene causing severe disease or malformations, each child born with that disease, there will be several who carry the gene and die in early pregnancy. It happens really often. And this was news to me and probably to a lot of you out there. Women have... Pregnancies that are self-aborted by the body early on, the the pregnancy isn't viable. It it ends so early that the woman doesn't even know she was pregnant in the first place. In many cases, these families seem to to the outside world to be suffering from low fertility. And yeah. So if we apply this to the dragon gene, it would mean that some of these sister-brother marriages would have a higher risk of miscarriage and infertility, which we are seeing. We are seeing that and have seen. In fact, the Targaryens before Aegon, the family tree is bare. There's very few children. They were, like, barely keeping it going. And there's, like, very few women on the in the tree at all. And they had several generations of inbreeding that might not have happened back in the Freehold. The Freehold would have been... It would have been inbreeding, but it would have been inbreeding from a larger pool. It would have been the 40 Dragon Rider families inbreeding incessantly, which is a much larger pool. 40 families is a much larger pool than one family, right? Like, that makes a huge difference. Even though it's still gonna be incestuous, even though it's still gonna be some danger there, it will be greatly lessened. Now they're all reduced to just marrying within themselves, which is just a tiny genetic pool, and that's a problem.
1: I did some research. I did a panel at Ice and FireCon on uh, incest. And uh, I've forgotten some of the specific numbers, but but you know there's some percentage chance for some certain defects to be passed. Yeah, and that when you have when you have a, a one degree of separation, like a brother and a sister, or a father and a daughter, something like that, it's exponential the, the, of that happening. Even still, it's like three percent. But if you do that two or three times in a row, all of a sudden it's like seventy percent, right? but if you go one branch away just to a cousin it's cut in half one branch mm. away it's cut in half again and so when you have 40 families even you're far enough branches you're cutting it in half so much and so often that it doesn't get past like the one percent point you know right but if you just do it for three or four generations in a row then it becomes like a guarantee that you're going to pass oh. these on these genetic flaws which sometimes there's something like a lip but sometimes it's like something that keeps a child from being born. So. Yeah,
0: and that does add up here. It adds up what Cat O'Vivas is saying does add up pretty well here, because what happens is you have, take prior to the Doom, let's say you have a bunch of, they have, they're doing their thing, they have marriages, the family's the size that it is, and they're presumably marrying, sometimes within the family, sometimes to other Dragon Rider families. They move to Westeros, and all of a sudden their birth rate drops dramatically until Aegon and his two sisters are born, but their mother was a Valyrian, was not a Targaryen. So it's like all of a sudden they do have a decent sized family. Three kids come from that union. And then two kids come from two marriages to Aegon only. And even the, both of those babies are a little suspicious, <laughs> right? At least one or both of them might not have been fathered by Aegon. And then what happens? Aenys marries Alyssa Valarian, another Valarian, and they have a lot of kids. So it's like as soon as another... Person that's not a Targaryen is brought into it. It's a bunch of kids are born. So it's like, yeah, like this isn't proof, but it's strong evidence, and it's and for our possibility of our, our purposes, it, it fits extremely well. And so I, I like this idea. I've been uh, I've kind of been in on this theory a little bit before, but it. It seems to carry more weight when we've got someone that's an expert (laughs) bringing in the theory and acknowledging the magical elements as well. So uh, a great theory, Cat Ovivas. I like it. Uh, It it builds on the existing body of theories that are here on this topic. And it works really well. I think it does work really well. Also, there's the possibility that there was magic, blood magic being used in Valyria to offset some of these issues. Like, okay, yes, we can't fix the genes perfectly, but we can... You know, immunize you against the worst effects of it, like magical immunization against the effects of incest, whatever these blood magicians were able to do. It's whatever they're doing. they had you know five, eight, thousand years to figure it out. so <laughs> they kept that society going for a long time despite the uh, the inbreeding. so they 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 had other answers to these problems. I think that maybe they 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 lost some of that uh, some of the ways to mitigate. Uh, st- those problems or maybe they didn't fully understand them maybe they maybe the problems were coming back in ways that they figured these things out thousands of years ago in Valyria and then they lost that knowledge cuz it wasn't important they were in, the forty families were providing enough genetic material to not have to for it not to be a problem and then they're like whoa this problem has come and they didn't know what to do about it cuz the last time it had been dealt with was thousands of years ago, and the books that were all written on it were long destroyed in the doom, something like that. Good idea. All right, our last little section for today is our build-up to Dorne. Yes, though Maria had rejected Rainis out of hand, as I mentioned earlier in the episode, there were attempts to bring Dorne into the realm via peaceful negotiation.
1: Quote. With the submission of the Three Sisters and the Iron Islands, all of Westeros south of the Wall was now ruled by Aegon Targaryen, save Dorne alone. So it was to Dorne that the dragon next turned his attention. Aegon first attempted to win the Dornishmen with words, dispatching a delegation of high lords, maesters, and septons to Sunspear to treat with Princess Maria Martell, the so-called Yellow Toad of Dorne, and persuade her of the advantages of joining her realm to his. The negotiations continued for the best part of a year, but achieved nothing.
0: So, real quick, the timeline here—it's not exactly clear when this began, but it says as soon as he you know, turned, as he turned his attention to Dorne after the three sisters in the island islands were taken care of, which was around the second year. So he probably started back with these negotiations near the end of AC two. So this, where it says they negotiated, continued for the best part of a year. That would probably be most of AC three. And the eventual opening of hostilities happened in AC four, so it all it all adds up pretty well. Maria was in her eighties, overweight, blind. She didn't paint a picture of health. <laughs> he would never admit to it, Egon. I mean, but perhaps he was hoping Maria would just die, and then he would be negotiating with her heir, who might be a lot less stubborn, who might at least at least have a different attitude, because this clearly wasn't getting anywhere. And again, just like it was with Torin and the lord of the Vale, and the arranging of a marriage between their children or the lord of the Vale and his child rather to be specific what were they offering here what were they what are the advantages of joining their realm again it feels like there's a lot of negative reinforcement here it's like not submitting to us means war you know you may be stubborn but we've got dragons you know (laughs) what is the what's the negotiation here how diplomatic was aegon how over was he that being like we're coming for you probably didn't work, so he might have tried a different tactic. Like tying your realm to ours means greater trade, greater re-. like you, your people on. Here's one that comes to mind: If you join our realm, your long-standing grievances and wars with the Reach and Stormlands will will stop. Like that'll end. You'll over time. It won't happen right away, but over time, this this long-running feud will turn into a, a maybe even a good place where. Goods and ideas are exchanged. I mean, we still aren't to that in this day, but it's things are way better between Dorne and the Reach and the Stormlands than they, than they were in this era. So clearly, over time, it did get a lot better. Maybe that's part of his pitch. It's like, look, but to have this is this is good for the long term. It's not about my ego. It's not about yours. This is good for Dorne, you know, for these reasons. Well, she doesn't agree. That's her right, and she might be right. But
1: on that one, she might not have agreed because. What he's seeing as a positive, what I think I and most rational people see as a positive, she or some of her people might not have. Mm-hmm. She doesn't want peace with them. She wants to exact vengeance on them for the cousin they killed last year or whatever. You know, like that's mm. been an ongoing feud. She might not want that to end.
0: Yeah, she might not want to be. She might not will be willing to accept the realm if like the Reach wasn't in it or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Now the Stormlands were taken over by an entirely new person, so that's. They don't necessarily have the same level of grudge there, although they would have many individual grudges against lesser houses, perhaps, especially the Marcher Houses, if not Storm's End, because it's now Ori Baratheon's. But, I mean, the Dornish aren't, they're just not the type to give in easily. That's something we've learned over many centuries, many examples of that. And... So there are examples that aren't just negative reinforcement. There's there's potential, but I, and I imagine since the negotiations took place over the course of a year, Aegon may have tried all these different tactics. He's like, okay, let's try the stick, let's try the carrot, let's try the carrot stick, you know, <laughs> a stick you can eat, right? That's somewhere in between. Uh, let's try, yeah, offering this and that. There wouldn't have been. I wonder if there were marriage offers, but you know, if he had a kid to marry to them, that would have maybe made it easier because that is what it took event in the long term right it took a marriage to get Doran into the realm or a double marriage and yeah Aegon's potential sterility or partial sterility may have sort of tanked this possibility and led to well led to war but Aegon just might not have been willing to do that it's it's an assumption that Aegon even if he had children would have been willing to marry them to the Martells he might not have been willing to do that I think he probably would have though to to avoid having to just just annihilate Dorn.
1: if he could see the future he would have right yeah. if he knew how things are going to pan out he definitely would oh have. yes
0: unquestionably yes
1: <laughs> because I wonder though if the yellow toad would have if she Ooh. knew how it was going to play out if she might have still been so stubborn to not do it
0: I wonder well she is going to see the entire war despite her I mean, despite it, being in the eighty, her eighty, not see because she's blind. She but she's saw, gonna live through it all.
2: She saw how it played out. She'd see it. Dorne got the best of them.
1: Well, like,
2: don't but they, like, they a lot
1: of people were killed. I mean, cities were destroyed. I still right? think like that, they're,
2: that they're of all the different realms, Dorne is the one that they're still princes. They're, I in the mean, long run, I guess the long you're probably run, right. Yeah. I think it worked out for them.
0: Yeah, yeah. The short term was awful because they, as it's as it's going to say, I don't have the quote in front of me, but something like N- nearly every castle in Dorne was was dist- was burned, <laughs> and it's just that's awful. But and and like they starved for a long. They had, they had starvation and and food issues for a while after that. But but you, but they kept like their independence. Some of the things
1: they got in the long run, they might have gotten anyway if they mm-hmm. had submitted like some of those people that were killed might have been leaders and warriors and diplomats and traders that would have convinced Aegon to give them more autonomy or to change their way of life or it's hard to know what all those killed people might have done if they weren't killed
0: you're right yeah it's a it's a it's a giant what if you can't really what if with certainty when there's so many lives involved and so many Scenarios would have been dramatically different, but yeah, I can, I definitely see Isaiah's point.
1: Yeah, if a, the yellow toad or or a leader's goal was to preserve their people's culture, then you know maybe she quote unquote won. But I think that's not as an important goal as not letting your innocent people be killed
0: yeah yeah it's a t- tough it's a tough <laughs> for decision a decade you know because yeah, yeah. you can't predict how much of that will happen you can't predict like they didn't know that it would work out in the long run you know it did it did in terms of their independence as a says but they didn't they don't know that it that it's going to happen but yeah i mean their words are unbound unbanned, and broken that's what she said to rainies that's their cultural attitude yeah. they're going to back they're going to stand by that and well and so that so are the targaryens going to stand by their fire and blood <laughs> and that's why this war is going to be really brutal, really nasty and and despite that, very, very interesting because it's not just a war of battles and armies. It's a war of subterfuge, of assassinations, of intrigue and and lots of things that we see less of in other wars and it's such a long war we don't see much of that either we don't see a lot of really really long wars in westeros partly because of the the weather situation you know the fact that it's uh you might have winter for several years which is like well are we really going to have war during three years of winter i mean you might because it's dawn and where the weather is better where the winter doesn't hit as hard but they don't exactly have robust food growth down there either uh, as compared to some other regions so it's not all just roses to use a reference that's more appropriate for the tyrells but still you get my meaning <laughs> so that's where we're headed with our next episode it will it'll probably take us more than one episode to get through the war since it's so long and because non-war things are happening during it it's not all war that's uh, just uh, the the spotlight is on that. So that'll be next week. All right. We've got some patrons to give a shout out to. Sean, take it away.
1: And as always, I'll do a, a few new and a few old. Galby of Sirwin, the Pale Blade. Nice. I like that one. This is a long one. Get ready for this. Brandon Brewer of Castle Black Rune, sworn Alesmith to House Stark, Grandmaster of Zithomancer's Guild and Keeper of the Buzz.
0: Mm-hmm, yeah. I see. I used to know what Zithomancer meant, but I imagined it's something to do with brewing. I don't know. <laughs> well,
1: that makes sense. Yeah.
0: I looked it up, but I've forgotten what it meant.
1: Captain Lewis, the merchant prince. When men see his sales, they pay. Now that's
0: sales, S A L E S, like a salesman. Yeah. So, yes. Good pun <laughs> there. I love that one. I remember laughing out loud when he sent that one to us.
2: <laughs> yes. Zitho is the Greek word for beer.
1: Oh, Zitho, Zithos. okay. Yeah, we so knock back it. a tall glass of Zitho. <laughs> All right, we've got Lady Peg of House Bundy. Oh, Married good, with uh, Children back.
0: reference there.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Chara of House Krypton. Hmm. I hope that's a Superman reference. <laughs> And Lord Kizzle of Kissington. I
0: like a name with a lot of Zs, me my own name being fifty percent Z myself.
2: Zelf. <laughs> <Yourself.
0: laughs> my of uh, myself, <laughs> yes. You can find all these patron names at historyofwesteros.com, along with everything else we mentioned throughout this episode that relates to things you can buy or sign up for or join or participate in. You can pretty much all of that's at historyofwesteros.com. It's our sort of hub for all that. The answer to our trivia question, the, who came up with the Grand Maester office and when? Aegon himself in the year 5 AC. So uh, about one year after the events of this episode. Uh, as I said next week, first blood and fire, as in first blood and fire. First fire and blood doesn't sound quite as So For what it's worth,
2: know? first blood has a very different connotation to me as a woman. <laughs> Oh. Hmm.
0: Uh, yeah. was that true for lots of women when that movie came out? I wonder when the Rambo <laughs> movie dropped, like first blood a lot of women were like, that's not what that means to me.
2: Yeah, yeah. I didn't <laughs> even get until just now that that's what you meant. I, I was like, I don't think there's anything to do with menstruation in this episode, but I, I, I'll see what Aziz has to say. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: yes. Uh, so some episodes mentioned in this one that might be of interest to you because they relate to this one. Before the Dragons, under the Dragons, the episode on Balerion in our Blackwood episodes, which deal with some of these conflicts with the Brackens from a much more detailed view, and of course expands on different conflicts that weren't mentioned in this episode. Don't forget, we've got the Last Storm episode for patrons and members only. That's the war between, or the part of the war that uh, encompasses Rainis and Ori's fighting against the Stormlands and the great Argilac the Arrogant. And the Red Kraken. Ditto. Uh, there's That's an, a patrons and members episode as well. That's more about the loss of the old way, the changes to the Iron Isles in this era, and how they broke free again during the Dance of the Dragons under the Red Kraken, a.k.a. Dalton Greyjoy. Thanks to everyone who came to watch live, or if you listened later, we appreciate either way. Thanks to those of you who support us, either as a through a membership on Patreon, a Recurring or one time donation through our website or by signing up on Spotify. You can be a member and just add it on to your Spotify subscription. Just join us through there. It's right there in the link of the right there in the description of every episode. If you're listening on Spotify, there's a link to sign up. Thanks to Nina for her great notes. Always very helpful. Check out goodqueenalley.tumblr.com. Thanks to uh, those of you. uh, Thanks to those of us. Those of us. Thanks to our Back end music and video helpers, Joey, Jesse, Brand, and Michael Clarfeld. You guys are amazing. Our show looks a lot more professional because of y'all. And uh that's it for this week. We will see you next week for more Fire and Blood, more Valar Reritas. So do that. Valar us <laughs>